This episode is supported by Dove. Narrow beauty standards have permeated our feeds, perpetuating beauty ideals that can't be achieved in real life, impacting girls' self-esteem. To help combat this, the Dove Self-Esteem Project is taking action to support the next generation so that they can have a positive experience on social media by providing free resources to parents, mentors, and educators. Dove is tackling the issue of digital distortion with Reverse Selfie, a film rooted in new research on body confidence from the Dove Self-Esteem Project. They're also providing a new confidence kit so that kids and parents can navigate social media with confidence and have a more positive experience online. So head on over to dove.com slash the selfie talk to download the new confidence kit and helpful tips to have the selfie talk today. But Alex. Yeah, Shane. Let's begin this episode. Let's do it. Hello, everyone. I'm Alex and I'm here with my husband, Shane. The babies are in bed, the cat is in her room, and we are so glad that you could join us for happy hour on this Family Tree Podcast, episode 104. What are you smiling about? I don't know. You're just staring at me while I'm reading the intro. I wasn't even looking at you. I felt like you were staring at me, and it made me feel a little self-conscious. Well, who else am I going to look at? I don't know. I don't know. Are we ever going to get rid of the cats in a room? We don't have a cat. The cat isn't in a room. Well, probably at a room in my parents' house. My parents took over the cat because their cat died, and they missed the cat. So they have the cat now. Anyhow, cat's in a room, but Shane... We've got a great episode tonight, as per the usual. Are you excited for it? Heck yes, I am. (laughs) Good. All right, folks. So tonight we are starting off, I mean, after our lovely banter, with an interview with Becky Manley, who's a certified clinical trauma professional and the founder of Meta, which is a national eating disorder nonprofit. And Becky and I talk about how our approach to diet culture, body image, and weight loss as parents shapes you know, that language and behavior that our kids then grow up with. So we talk about recognizing an eating disorder in your kid and then supporting them through treatment. So really fascinating, really uh, critical conversation to have, I think. I recently did a poll on social media on on my Instagram, and it was like 10% of the people had been diagnosed with some sort of eating disorder at some point in their life. But then I asked how many people have had an undiagnosed eating disorder? Like, you know, would you would you self-diagnose yourself as having gone through bulimia, anorexia? I don't know what it's called when you work out too much, but that one too. And I think 73% of the women that took part in the survey would have classified themselves as having an eating disorder at some point in their lives. So super important and incredibly uh prevalent topic. But next, we move on to Jackie Siegel. So Jackie Siegel, if you don't know the name, she was in, I mean, the star of the documentary, The Queen of Versailles. It's about her life being married to David Siegel, who is the CEO of Westgate Resorts. It's like the biggest timeshare in America. And they're, they were billionaires. They lost their money in the housing crisis. Now they're billionaires again. And we talked to Jackie about being married to one of the wealthiest men in North America, raising eight children in the public eye and the tragic death of her daughter, Victoria, uh, to a drug overdose. So we unpack a lot and uh, it it should be a very fascinating one. Yeah, she was uh, an interest. She's an interesting person. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, people think money buys everything, but obviously she went through the worst thing that you could possibly go through. Like some people think money buys happiness, not everything, but definitely uh, terrible, terrible loss she went through. And the documentary is just a fascinating look too into Mm -hmm. the life of the incredibly rich. It was 
less glamorous than I, I would have thought, you know, just looking at uh, the lifestyle that in yeah. her husband to make all that money, he was working 24 seven. Obviously he was going through an economic uh, collapse, which affected his business, but it really made me, I don't know, appreciate our lives as, oh, man. you know, kind of in the middle class sector. Yeah. Oh man. One, 100%. I mean, the documentary does a an amazing job like truly go watch it what did we get it on Shane we watched it on TV somehow I think I think we watched it on Apple okay so we got it on Apple possibly but uh really interesting comparing the rise and fall of the Siegel family and then the they rose again although it wasn't in the documentary and comparing that with the lives of other people like their Filipino nannies and you know talking about their children and knowing you know what's happened to the family now which we get into in the interview and watching the film in retrospect it's it's just even more fascinating and heartbreaking yeah. i think but yes amazing interviews i hope you guys enjoy them but shane come here baby cheers so tonight we're in i'm in the fall spirit so take take a little sippy and tell me if it tastes like fall oh yeah it fell fell down my throat it felt like fall <laughs> This is, do I detect pumpkin in this drink? No, you dingus. What is it? You detect <laughs> apple and spices. So oh. maybe maybe the spices are like pumpkin-y, I guess, because I did use nutmeg, which in, you know, which is a little pumpkin-y. But we are drinking a non-alcoholic cocktail, Seedlip Spice 94, and then I did some mulled cider. Mulled cider. I said that mold? weird. Mulled? Mulled. M-U-L-L-E-D. Oh. Okay. Mulled, That's better. That's better than mulled. Mulled cider. And uh, so we got lots of tasty stuff in there. Lots of spices, babe. It's excellent. I appreciate you and this welcome. delicious drink. I knew there was apple. Apple was obviously prevalent, but I thought maybe there's a little pumpkin because I associate pumpkins with fall. See, you're Although, trying to do like the wine tasting, but with the non-alcoholic cocktails now. Well, I guess you put me up to it. I wasn't trying to do it. I was just doing the task that was assigned to me. But speaking of tasks, this is the opening. This is where I do uh, heavy lifting and come up with interesting topics. Topic number one. Mm -hmm. Is it worth it to go out if you have children? And I'm. this is a serious question. And I mean, ever. Is it ever worth it to go out? Okay, let's see. Okay, so the last time I went out, was with you and that was what two weeks ago and I was destroyed for two days two days I was exhausted do you remember like I went to bed at like 7 30 it was terrible yeah it was terrible I, th I think about that all the time how it's you're robbing yourself of tomorrow's happiness and then the next day's happiness too you're you're just you're borrowing is it what's the positive thing endorphins serotonin serotonin yeah. you're borrowing serotonin Dopamine. from your coming from your coming days so Knowing this, I, I went out last night <laughs> and I said, I'm not going to really drink. I'm going to have maybe one beer, water, whatever. Can I can I tell them what you told me before you left? Yeah. So Shane goes, no, like I'm I'm not going to drink. I'm just I'm going to have like two beers and I'm going to fake drink. You've seen me fake drink. That's what I'm going to do. And I was like, OK, Shane, he seems pretty resolute in this. I wonder what's going to happen. So I, I get to the place. I go to Toronto. I'm getting PTSD flashbacks from my old commuting days. I'm meeting up with my boss in a way. I did a freelance job mm -hmm. and I was meeting up with my boss to celebrate the project being done. And he lives in L.A. So he was in Toronto. He's actually dating 
someone in Toronto. So he has a bit of a long distance relationship right now where she flies and meets him in LA. He flies and comes to Toronto. So I wanted to meet his new girlfriend too. But I get there and it was kind of awkward meeting someone new. And this this guy isn't that talkative. So <laughs> with the drink in front of me, not just because it was alcohol and I was drinking to calm my nerves. Right. I find I'm just a fidgety person. So if I'm at a party and I don't have a lot to say, and let's say there's a tray of nuts or mm-hmm. chips, I'll just compulsively eat the things to kill time because I don't know what to do with my hands. I don't want to sit in silence. And I was just feeling so socially inept that I just kept drinking. Oh. And by the way, there was pictures at the table right so it wasn't a situation where i could accurately monitor my intake or fake it because i thought it was going to be a situation where i go to a place i Mm -hmm. order a drink and then i bring it back to my table a waiter just kept bringing pictures right so you know I i probably only had five or six beers which i realize is still a lot of beers Mm -hmm. wait can i i gotta ask a question Because I'm calling a little bit of BS in your story here. Because you're saying it it makes you nervous to meet new people. So then you were like kind of fidgety and reaching for the the endless beer. My heart was racing. You have no idea. There was like one, maybe two new people. And then all of your buddies. Okay. I got Mark Myers. People don't know these names. But my friend Mark, (laughs) he won't say anything. He'll just sit there and like revel in the silence. (laughs) Then I have my friend Mike. He's the opposite. He he will get the conversation going, mm-hmm. but he'll try to have me engage and set right. me up for jokes. So I have to be so on, and I'm just like I, he was the only person I felt comfortable to look in the eye. And <laughs> everyone wants to know. Like, remember I said I'm not good with geography. Yes. This one woman, she was like very worldly. She was talking about all the places she's been to in the world. And I don't know anything. So I don't want to be talked to. So I am I just got my head down and I'm drinking. It was so much pressure on me. Meeting new people is tough because. Yeah, but there were so many people there is what I'm saying. It's no, there like wasn't. the pressure's there lifted. Wasn't. There it's was not like two, you. Two, two new women that mm-hmm. I never met before. My, my friend who doesn't really talk. My other friend who doesn't really talk. My other friend who doesn't shut up. <laughs> And I found anytime there was a pause, it was called upon me to fill that pause. I thought pause. Max was there too. He's a talker. He showed up late. All right. Because right. he, uh, a friend of his, I, well, he had to take a, a rapid COVID test. I'll say that. So Max had to go to find a COVID test. Wasn't Randall to there out. too? No. Oh, okay. Randall was at the cottage. This was, anyway, it wasn't worth it th- the next morning to me. And I had to go to another social event. Which is your a communion, a communion, a first communion, the yeah. worst place you want to go to, basically, if you're hungover, <laughs> a child's communion. I don't even know what a communion Lots of family. is. <laughs> like, what are they? A communion? They a eat communion, a little piece of bread. It's the first time that you're allowed to eat the bread because it's it's the first time that you are like, you know, understanding that you're a part of the Catholic religion, essentially. So it's like you know the the big celebration that celebrates that. <laughs> and I don't know a lot of people in this family. Yes. I'm going to a party. I feel terribly awkward. I'm unconfident. I feel like a bloated corpse. <laughs> what? And when I walked in, people were looking at me. And you know, you get very self conscious sometimes. And you think people don't like you, right? So I walk in, and I'm just going, 
that person hates me for some reason that but why did that that person normally says hello they did the last time now they're not so i'm just all in my head i i have no serotonin and then you came up to me and you go oh i think some of these people don't like me you were getting <laughs> self-conscious too yeah and it was just i was just thinking i gotta get out there i gotta exercise i gotta get my dopamine up i don't even know if i ever want to go out again i dread these moments being a parent you lucy's waking up at 5 a.m every day oh my gosh both kids both kids shane are waking up at 5 a.m so it's it's tough shane and i were struggling today so like i took the first nap so i i woke up at you know five with the kids and then six we were like doing stuff upstairs and then I watched them till seven. Then I took a two hour nap or 7.30. I took an hour and a half nap. And then Shane took a nap after me. And then we did the communion. And this is after a week of just utter exhaustion. Both of us working our little high knees off and just being so tired all week. Shane, I'm so shocked that you were able to muster energy to not just go out, but go out in Toronto. Like Toronto gives me the heebie-jeebies these days because it's just so far. There's just so much more effort that needs to go into it. And the thought of going out in Toronto, it just, the thought of it exhausts oh, me. Oh, and I had to Uber back at 2 a.m. Paid $127 for an Uber. Ugh. It was supposed to be an Uber split, but the person I was with was asleep and I didn't want to like tap them to get money off them. So there's so many reasons it just wasn't worth it. Even at though least. I will say I did have a good time. So yeah, my question to you is, Okay. is it worth it? <laughs> All right, so I think... That going overboard is never worth it. Like I didn't go overboard though. No, but overboard's different these days because, and and we have to account for that because we're getting up way earlier. And it's like when we get up, we're not just sitting around. We have to be responsible. We have to parent and it's kids are crying. It hurts your head. It just doesn't make things pleasant. So the overboard line is different. And the overboard line may be, so far from what we would have considered overboard pre-kids. Do you know what I mean? So I think that is hardly ever worth it. But personally, I love, you know, if you and I, because you and I had a great time a couple weeks ago, we just went past that new overboard line. And that night though, it really invigorated me. And I really had a new lease on like, not life, but like my energy the next day. And I really felt great. I really felt connected to you. I felt like I had fun and it made all the hard work nights and all the not going out worth it to a point, to a point. You so were I, terrible the next day. No, you were a what nightmare. Saying. What are you talking that's about? What, You're no, lying to the audience? No, 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 no. I felt terrible. Oh, okay. But <laughs> I thought you just said you felt great. Yeah, I did in the sense that I felt so much less stressed and I felt like a renewed sense of connection with you. And I I thought that was so great. So I think that you just have to work out that line and not stay out. Like you got to be asleep way before 2 2 a.m. 2 a.m. We used to say like nothing good happens after 2 a.m. But now it's got to be like 12 a.m. Nothing good happens after 12 a.m. And if you stay out one minute past 12 a.m., that adds three hours onto your crappy feeling the next day. I just think I need to go on a long period where I'm just not drinking and I'm working out every day. Yeah, do it. I'm at like such a low for everything. Everything Mm -hmm. I'm doing, I feel like I'm not doing it well. 
And it's really got my confidence. And is that because you're doing too much so that you can't? Po possibly. And, and in part of that too much, it's now that things are opening up, I think I'm maybe seeing socializing too much or something right. to overcompensate for what I, I was lacking. Uh, we did an Emma Wiggle interview the other day. Mm -hmm. And you were great, but I'm just a bag of shit in that interview. <laughs> like Emma is like the happiest, like energizing person in the world. And I couldn't even be in the moment with her at all. Well, that sucks. Yeah. And it's a great interview. It's mm -hmm. awesome. Like, we're very fortunate and lucky to even be talking to her. She talked to us for an hour and 15 minutes <laughs> or something. And I'm not giving her my best because mm -hmm. my energies are split so many different ways that it really had me questioning everything. Yeah. I'm also doing this sketch show. And I went to a table read. And I, I just didn't feel like I'm giving everything my all. Yeah. It was a hard week, though, because you did take on that extra freelance gig, right? So yeah, I think that you will be feeling better now that that is over. And I do think that if you start, like, forcing yourself to – or not forcing yourself because you're willing to, but just, like, forcing the time to go outside, I think you're going to feel so much better. Oh, 100%. Really do, That's yeah. my next thing. Like, Pelotons, are they worth it? It seems like – Everyone, I'd love to know. Everyone hated Pelotons when that ad came out yeah. and the man got her, this, this very attractive woman, he already like got her a, the gift of Peloton. And Work I, out, babe. And I, it seemed like Peloton was for the birds. It's like this out of touch mm -hmm. company is just ridiculous. And then it turned out that that just made people want a Peloton more as much as they complained about the ad and thought that the product might not be a great gift to have. It seemed like Everyone wanted one. You know who sold me on a Peloton? Who? Podcast listener and your old friend, Matab. She got a Peloton and she was telling me all about it, how much she likes it. And she like worked out the financial aspect for me and like compared to a gym membership and everything like that. Because we were both talking about like how we're not going back to the gym, especially because my gym got rid of their childcare, which sucks. But anyhow, I think maybe Pelotons, they're like so overpriced. But so many people bought them, especially in the early stages of the pandemic. I bet we can find one used for a good price. Well, that's that what somebody my, doesn't want my friend did. So this week I had to go to Toronto again for this freelance job. There was a brainstorm. And one of the people in the freelance session was a person I worked with very closely. I love this man. He was just laid off. So I'm expecting him to have his head down and be down in the dumps, kind of like how I was feeling this week. <laughs> yeah. So I show up. The guy looks great, amazing. He lifts up his shirt, shredded six pack. <laughs> <laughs> like this guy did not look like that before. He's in the best mood and he just got laid off. So I'm like, what's going on here? Everyone looks great. You're acting great. He goes, Peloton. I got a Peloton. I bought it used, 4,000 bucks. Best thing ever. $4,000. Yeah, for a used one, I think. Holy so, S. But I, I'm thinking, is does money even matter? Like, I just want to feel good. And maybe this Peloton's what I need. <laughs> no, I I think we can, okay, let's buy the Peloton app so we get the workouts, but then let's just get a cheaper bike. So it's like, then we do the Peloton workouts. I suggested that to him. He goes, no, you're going to love the trainers. And it was all no, about the trainers. No, that's what I'm saying, Shane. You get, you get them on your phone though. You don't need oh. the bike for it. 
But he, you get he, it on the phone. He made it seem like you need the big TV or no, it's not the same. No, okay. my cousin uh, does Polish Peloton. So she <laughs> has a bike and then she just is paying for the subscription to the trainers and the app. And then she does all the workouts without actually owning any of their stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And you, you get the fun trainers. Because I want the guy, Bert's Papaya, Sarah Nicole, she uses this one trainer and he's just so much fun. Like she's always posting videos of him and like it pumps me up when I'm sitting on the couch doing nothing. Like I want him to train me. So are we going to go on a fitness journey together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm still, I'm still having drinks on Wednesday date nights. Okay. I, I will. I just need to really rein it in. I need your help. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, yeah, I'm a shell of a man. Well, love, we will have our one bottle of wine on date night and then maybe one whiskey on the rocks and that's it. I can't. Two glasses of wine and one whiskey. I'm not having the whiskey. All right. Let's just do the wine then. I'll settle on that. Yeah. Until like the holidays. Okay. Then I can let loose again. (laughs) I'll go with you. (laughs) And um, Lou told me she didn't love me today too. Well, she was being a little testy today. Okay. She said it in anger. I don't love you. And then she cheered up like you sing a song every night with her. Mm-hmm. And Lou comes out in a great mood. And she goes, I still don't love no, you. No, she did Yes, she did. And she goes, oh, you don't love me? She goes, no. And then smiled like the Chucky doll. And, and she kind of looks like Chucky because she's got a big scar over her eyebrow Yeah, right she now. does. And it got me a little down. That is sad. So are, is three just the age where kids are, are all three-year-olds like this? Have you not heard of the phrase three-nager? Well, I don't think teenagers are this cruel. Oh, they are. Really? Teenagers are horrible. They can be horrible. I don't think a teenager would grab a coloring book and smack her one-year-old sister over the head with it. No, they'd punch their sister and then scream at you, I hate you! You're ruining my life! Were you like this? I was never like this. No, 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 no. But I know people are. And I was, uh, same but different. Like, Mm -hmm. I wasn't like that but i was i had my horrible moments i feel terrible for my parents and i've been apologizing for them ever since did you ever yell at your parents like scream at the top of your lungs probably yeah they i'm sure they'd remember i don't really remember you tell them you hate them no i don't think i ever said i hate them i don't think i ever said that i think i did say that i think you did yeah see shane teenagers are horrible uh, yeah you're right they're horrible But yeah, that that was my next topic. Just talking about three-year-olds. How bad should I feel that Lucy says things to me? I'm wondering, are my other friends three-year-olds saying this to them? Or I don't know. I think I think she's testing boundaries. She's realizing for the first time that that her words have an impact on people, and she's seeing what that impact is. So I think we just have to show her, like, tell her that makes you sad. Tell her how it makes you feel. And then it made you really sad. I told her that. And then she went, (laughs) and she laughed. (laughs) That's where she gets it from. You, obviously. (laughs) You like this because you're the loved one, right? I don't like it. Oh, Shane, she told me three times today that she didn't want me anymore. Good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Let's get to Becky Manley. Yes, let's get to Becky Manley. But before we do that, let's tell everyone who we are supported by. We are supported by Mini Miosh, a premium, organic, ethically made, and sustainable kids and babies clothing company founded and created in Toronto. Mini Miosh believes in quality over quantity, and they make the best basics for your littles. I mean, fashionable wardrobe staples that are super soft, comfy, and timeless, and can be passed from kid to kid regardless of their gender. 
It really is the best, you know. It's the best. We think so. Lucy thinks so. Even though Betty can't talk, we know she thinks She's so. She's thinking it. You can tell. Their organic cotton fabrics are knit and dyed locally using GOTS certified organic cotton and low impact non-toxic dyes. They're on a mission to leave the planet better off for our little ones than when they arrived on it. And they believe that every little bit counts. So you can find this amazing company online at minimiosh.com or at minimiosh on Instagram and Facebook. And if you use the promo code thisfamilytree15, you're going to get 15% off your entire order. This is available in Canada and in the US. And again, that's minimiosh.com and thisfamilytree15. And now let's get to our interview with Becky. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing today? Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. I like how easily we were able to uh, set that up. I know. That never (laughs) happens for me. (laughs) Neither for me. No, and honestly, now that I'm uh, back at work, I just got off mat leave. And now that I'm back working and my time for interviews has totally shrunk, it's like a nightmare. So yes, I've, I've heard that. I heard you are, are having trouble making your TikToks. Oh, Becky, <laughs> it's a nightmare. The kids yeah. won't sleep long enough. It's horrible. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if you can bang out five at a time, that's pretty impressive. It sounds like you listened to a bit of an episode. I did. I did, actually. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. What'd you think? Awesome. Good. I'm glad you like it. Well, truly, I am so happy that you are here today. Uh, I wrote a post about body image and um, disordered eating last week and just how, you know, we don't say no to junk food all the time. And we try not to make a huge distinction in our house about, oh, that food's bad for you. We don't say that. And we try to be really careful with our words. And honestly, this wasn't even in my radar before my kids started getting a little older. And then my cousin sent me a few pieces of your work and things from your page. And I started reading and I was like, oh man, this is it. This is exactly it. I need to talk to you and I want to know more. So Becky, can you please tell me, what do you do? What's your background? So my background is that, well, I'll tell you, a little bit about the work that I do. My background is I have my master's in family studies and counseling. I'm a certified coach. I kind of meld the two. I call myself a therapeutic coach. Uh, I have a private practice where I specialize in seeing girls. Not that I don't like boys, but uh, I specialize in seeing girls. And I've been in the field for about 28 years. Uh, the other hat that I wear is I am the founder of the Multi-Service Eating Disorders Association, which, which was founded in February of 1994. And that was founded out of my own personal struggle with body dissatisfaction and eating issues through much of my childhood and into my adolescent years. And after I got my master's, I felt so strongly about talking about di- diet culture and body confidence and all, while also providing resources for people who are struggling that I started this organization, never thinking that it, I would still be doing it 28 years later. That's amazing. That's really amazing. And if I may ask, what is your history with body dissatisfaction? So it started really when I was a child. My, I grew up in a kind of a diet-centric household which you'll, you'll read about if you follow me on my Meta Founder account. I talk a lot about being a, 
a child of diet culture Mm -hmm. and how that really affected me. And it's not the blame game. I'm not blaming my mom. I'm not blaming my grandmother. I'm not blaming my great grandmother. They were all products of their culture. Mm -hmm. But what it did is it gave me this idea that my body wasn't good enough the way it was, that I always needed to change it, that I needed to be a good girl and not speak up for my wants and my needs. We were in a very confusing household because I grew up with this large Italian family where I was told to manja and have a clean plate club, yet I was also told to be pretty and thin. So I got these contradicting messages all the time, and it was really, really confusing. Mm-hmm. So I never really learned to listen to my body. I was never, I was always, I wanted to please my parents. So I cleaned my plate. I ate past fullness. So I was never really listening to what my body was telling me. Mm -hmm. And so um, that combined with the diet culture, like I said, my mom dieted, my grandmother's dieted, my great grandmother's dieted. And so I was always dieting. Mm -hmm. And what happened was that one diet led to another diet, which led to an eating disorder. And yeah, and and that is the Kool-Aid. And dieters are eight times more likely to develop an eating disorder. And that combined with my genetic history of people in my family all struggling, also struggling with food issues, uh, addiction runs in my family. So I had the genetic makeup for an Mm -hmm. eating disorder. Mm -hmm. See, it sounds like, honestly, your background culturally sounds a lot like mine. So my family's Polish-Russian. And it's it's that European thing, right? So it's, okay, I'm going to make you a ton of foods. And I this like sausage, pierogies, cabbage rolls, just really, you know, calorie-dense foods, lots of butter and lard and everything used to make this. And you better eat all of it to show me that you appreciate it. Because, you know, these people are spending all day cooking and and they want to see you eating because they want you to be healthy and strong. But then at the same time, I had this, you know, mentally for good reason. I mean, she lived through a war, but uh, mentally unstable great aunt. And if she saw you and like this would be as a teenager, she'd go to you and she'd go, oh, Alexandra, so nice to see you. You gained a little bit, I think. And it would be in the greeting first thing, staring at you in the face. And then there would be, you know, like my my grandmother even, and I love her, listeners of this podcast know I love her more than life itself. She's passed for a few years now, but, you know, anything she said, I took so wholeheartedly. But she'd always remind me that I always had to stay trim, stay skinny, for for the good husband. You know, if you want a doctor, you got to mm-hmm. stay skinny. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it seeps in, especially if you're hearing that from such a young age. But again, not the blame game. It's not her fault. She was raised like that too, right? And it's right. hard. It's hard it's to it's break the cycle. Hard. It is. It absolutely is. And I also think that you know you grow up thinking that everybody can look this way, mm-hmm. right? And I had it especially difficult because my sister was very, very, very slender and very slim. And I was not that way. And so I kept thinking, why is my body not turning into her body? What's going on here? So that compiled with the fact that I was always dieting. 
Mm-hmm. I was ne- I was ne- I was never trusting my own body, and I was always looking to change it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And when I did change it, then I was constantly fearful that I could maintain it. So, and and that's a cycle that is just it. It keeps you from life. That mm-hmm. cycle. Absolutely. Like I know. Well, it's hard for me to think of a woman that I know who's my age, who has not at one point struggled with eating or their perception of themselves in diet culture, whether it was, you know, I I don't know any women who have suffered from anorexia, but I, I know many, like dozens who have suffered from bulimia at some point in their life or binging, purging, you know, maybe not diagnosed, but somewhere there. And at the very least, dieting and just going through that the, the dissatisfaction, like you said right at the beginning, every single woman in my life and lots of strong women, some of them who didn't even seemingly care about conventional looks or weight. Like I, I hung out with a lot of athletes growing up and some of them really didn't care about that, but then still had these notions about their body or dieting or whatever. So I want to talk, what is intuitive eating? Is, is this another thing like within diet culture or is this something that's more of like a healing eating practice? No, no. Intuitive eating is the opposite of diet culture. Intuitive eating is, so the first, it's based on 10 tenets, okay. right? 10, 10 themes. And Evelyn Tribal is um, one of the authors and she came up with, with these tenants and the first one being reject diet mentality, because when you go on a diet, what ends up happening is that you end up following the rules that someone else is telling you about fueling your body. Eat this, not that. And the problem with that is that then you never trust your body, your hunger, and your eating, because you're always looking outside yourself to feed yourself. So it's a philosophy that really helps you get in tune with your own hunger and eating in a manner that is really listening to what your body needs. What does your body need? And honoring that hunger instead of, oh, I'm not going to eat right now. It's 10 o'clock. I just had breakfast an hour and a half ago, but I'm not going to eat because I shouldn't eat until lunch. And then you put off your hunger and guess what? By lunchtime, you end up overeating because you're so hungry and so ravenous and you didn't listen to your body an hour and a half earlier when you really just you needed a snack at that time. Story of my life. <laughs> it, it's just it's honoring it's honoring your body. It's helping you to make peace with food. Food and exercise are not the enemy, and that's what's so great about this concept. And it's there's so much research to back it too. She has tons of research. If you go down to her website, she has all of the research to back this this way of eating that, again, helps you tune in to your body, your body sensations, your hunger, and what your body really and truly needs. She talks a lot about food satisfaction and really eating something like, wow, what do I feel like eating right now? 
Do I feel like eating something crunchy? Do I feel like eating something soft? Do I feel like having a sandwich? Do I feel like having a salad? And it's kind of like, what is your body looking for, right? Versus being told what you should or should not have. Yeah, well, it's funny because I think the only times that I've really focused and really tried to get in tune with what I felt like eating, like you used really specific words like crunchy, soft, whatever, and that's so specific. And it makes me think of pregnancy when I was having cravings and I was sitting there and I'd I'd think, hmm, like what's my body asking for right now? And then I'd send my husband, like it's like, you know, an old sitcom. I'd send him to the store for the pickles or for the cheesecake, whatever it was that I really felt like eating. But then I step outside of that pregnancy realm, that kind of safety zone, and I, I don't listen to my body or my hunger cues in the same way. I'll either just go into the kitchen and eat half a tub of ricotta cheese because it's there and I do love it or shovel like tortilla chips in my mouth just because it's quick and easy. Easy, right. And I assume that's totally at odds with the tenets of intuitive eating. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. And I mean, some of them some of them you're right on. Like, you know, eating, eating that cheese because you really like it and you really enjoy it. Okay. It's more take the time, take time out of your busy schedule to fuel yourself in a way that feels good and is kind of caring and nurturing, which is the exact opposite of diet mentality, which is punishing discipline And when you're punishing yourself and you're being really disciplined, it doesn't really feel loving and compassionate. It feels very much like, you know, just, I I have to do this. This is what I have to do to change the way I look. And so thinking about, okay, how can I really embrace and nurture myself and have compassion And wow, my body deserves to sit down and have a nice lunch and take 20 minutes out of my schedule to fuel myself. And I think it's especially hard as parents because we're always running around and doing for other people, right? Absolutely, yeah. And there's nothing better that you can do as a parent than model the fact that eating and taking care of yourself is really important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I want to think about this conversation from a parenting lens. Uh, I think about my parents. My parents are, I mean, they're they're 61 now. They've always been incredibly health conscious and they've always really enjoyed working out. Like our family was always very active together. But then my parents were also on, and again, like just how they liked to live life, but they were always doing some kind of thing whether it was eating very healthfully, all home cooked, tons of veggies throughout the week and zero treats or anything. And then on Saturday, they could eat whatever they wanted Mm -hmm. or they were doing a protein thing Mm -hmm. or whatever. Like there were always books and just stuff that they were doing. And I know when I was younger, that kind of – it impacted me in some ways. I mean, I think I went through a lot of the same things that a lot of women 
go through, uh, which is, you know, ups and downs with loving and hating your body. And now I'm at a place after having kids where I just, I stopped caring about certain aspects of it. I still care a lot about other aspects. Mm -hmm. But I always think like my first, the first thing that I go to is, oh, like holding off on certain foods or foods as rewards and things like that. And I want to look at how, you know, as parents, when we talk about foods in front of our kids, how that impacts them. So like, what do you see? And through your experience, do people often talk about their parents in, you know, the evolution of their eating disorders? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, again, I want to be very clear that we are all products of our society. Mm -hmm. We're products of this culture. We're products of diet culture. And it's very, very confusing as parents, what to do. I mean, my children, I mean, I would take them to their PCP and I, I learned very quickly that, I was going to call my PCP in advance and make sure that they did not tell them where they were on uh, what their BMI was or where they Wait, were. What's, on a, the what's PCP? Oh, primary care physician. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> their primary care physician. Okay. I would I, making sure that they didn't talk about where they were on the growth curve and, and their body mass index and telling them what they should or should not eat. And again, these are messages that parents are getting from their family doctors that first of all is a lot of it is misinformation. It's, it's damaging information. If we think about the tenets of intuitive eating, one of the things I want to also be clear is that she talks about honoring nutrition and honoring exercise intuitive eating isn't eat whatever you want, whenever you want it, yeah. never move. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's about really taking good care of your body. Mm -hmm. So as parents to, to think about, okay, how can I, how can I help my child develop healthful habits without talking about weight loss or diets? Yeah. But it's tricky. It is so hard. It's very tricky. It's very tricky. So I like to think about it this way. As parents, we provide the what and the when, and the children decide how much and what, like what they're going to try. For instance, when my children were younger, I stopped plating their food. Because when you plate your child's food, you're really giving them the message, okay, this is what mom thinks you should eat. This is what mom thinks your appetite is versus allowing them to have the food on the table and allow them to take what they want and allow them to determine when they've had enough. What age? What age is good? Or did you start doing that anyway? I started it at three. Yeah. I started it very young with my children and I talked a lot about and helping them. Oh, my body really feels full. Boy, on a scale of one to 10, I'm about at a five. I think I'm really going to slow down now. Or wow, I'm really, really feeling really hungry today. I had such a busy day. I was running around. I had a long walk with my dog. I was doing this. I was doing that. And my body's feeling really hungry and, and giving and letting them know that, boy, now I'm really going to fuel my body. And then that's something that we're going to talk about. But I think one of the most important things is not dieting in your household, 
having a scale in your household, unless you really need it for a health reason, not talking about foods in good way, you know, it's good food or bad food, not putting uh, a moral emphasis on or judgment around food or bodies, not talking about your child's body in a way that is shaming or comparing. Yeah. Wow. Your belly's so much bigger than Susie's belly or wow. You're so much taller than John. You must be really eating your, you know, your, your green beans. So, you know, doing anything that's, you know, comparison in that way and talking about bodies not to look at, but what does your body do? What, what's, oh, you know, can you, you can run so fast or you, wow, you, you, wow, that was a great art project that you completed. You're, you know, you're, you're so talented and talking about it in a way that isn't focused on appearance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you mentioned about, you talked to your, your PCP, new acronym I learned about not talking to your kids about their BMIs and things like that. And why is it that, cause so you're, you're in the U S right? Right. Yeah. So we're we're in Canada outside of Toronto. And it's like we still haven't gotten it here. And I want I want to know your take on why physicians and family doctors are still in this mindset of bringing that up. Like my family doctor in like the floor that her clinic is on right next door to her office, she owns a, a laser fat removal clinic. So it's like she's a doctor and then she has this laser or I don't know what it is, freezes the fat off or lasers it off. Smart lipo or something. Right. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, so I think of that. And then I think of when I was 17 and my parents got me my first gym membership, which because like I, I was athletic and I wanted to work out in the off season and everything like that. I loved like I love being active. So it wasn't like they were, you know, making me go to the gym. It was I wanted to. But I remember in order to join, they had to do a health, and I say that in air quotes, a health assessment. Uh, and they had me do all these things. And again, like I was an athletic kid, but I also was at my heaviest that I had been in my life outside of pregnancy or postpartum. But that was still just, it was a size eight. And I remember the guy, I'm a 17-year-old girl. This guy was like 23. He's telling me that he goes, okay, look at your BMI. He goes, you are overweight. He goes, you should not be this weight. This is what you should be. And this is like a guy that I might think is cute or that I might want to impress. And here he is in a room telling me that I'm overweight and that I'm not good enough and that I need to get to this point to be good enough. I felt so humiliated. I remember I went home and cried and my parents were like, Alex, like you do not have to go here. Like you do not have, cause he was trying to sell me personal training. They're like, Alex, you do not have to do personal training. You don't have to deal with that guy ever. But it was just such a weird moment. Cause then I was like, is this how people see me? Mm-hmm. And then I thought about my doctor. I'm like, is that how she sees people too? So why is everybody, I guess money, right? It, I guess I'm coming to the conclusion on my own <laughs> capitalism. Right. right. Shame-based marketing works. Yeah. It really does. It really does. And here's the thing, you know, the BMI doesn't take into consideration how active you are. Right. It doesn't take into consideration your genetics. It doesn't take into consideration, I mean, your muscle mass. It doesn't take into consideration 
a lot of different things. And I think, you know, getting back to the medical field for so long, people have associated weight with health Yeah, that that's the driving force. And it's starting to change little by little, but it's still the driving force. Mm -hmm. And that is so dangerous because you can be healthy at any size. It's, it's what we really want to focus in on is healthful behaviors. Yeah. And okay. So thinking about that, because that, again, like I've made a lot of self-identifying as fat friends in the online community. And this is something that they've, you know, I've talked about or I see happening on their pages. And it's full of people saying, hey, like, I don't even know you, but you're going to die if you don't see a doctor. You know, I'm just concerned for your health. You need to lose weight or else you're going to, it's all, you're going to die. You're going to die. You must not care about your kids. You must not do this. So how do we move away from that? And like, what's the response to that? Because I don't know, because I was conditioned on the belief that you cannot be healthy at every size. So to be quite honest, and it's embarrassing to admit, but I, even I have a hard time wrapping my head around that sometimes. Right. So think about it this way. Think about it. If someone is eating a wide variety of foods, mm-hmm. lots of fruits and vegetables, eating health, lean proteins, moving, running, exercising, Zumba, yoga, weightlifting, whatever it might be. And they have regular blood pressure regular cholesterol, all their blood work is in within normal limits, but they're living in a larger body. So think about it this way. Someone who's in a very small body could be smoking every day, could be eating a lot of processed foods, not eating any vegetables. And you put that body next to the person in the larger body and nine times out of 10, people will say, oh, the larger body wants the most unhealthy, uh, you know, the the unhealthiest. Mm -hmm. But you don't know the behaviors of the other person. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's really, that's really it. And I think, you know, the other thing is that so many people have just gone on so many diets and they've just yo-yoed up and down, up and down, up and down their entire life. And that's not healthy for the body. If you look at longevity, it's people who are 20 to 25 pounds, so-called overweight, live the longest. Oh, really? Yes. So it's, it's, it's really interesting, the, the medical field and the spin on it. I think it's a lot of it's driven from the insurance companies, mm-hmm. and the misinformation from the insurance companies. And it's... It's really, really dangerous. Why, why do you think they still use BMI so frequently? You, I think until someone comes up with another unit of measure, that's what we're stuck with. Jeez. That it's is broke. It. We need to fix it. It's broke. <laughs> it's absolutely broke. Yeah. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't meant to be used like this. The, the BMI was created. He, I mean, he was an astrologist. What? And he wasn't a physician. 
the who it, yes and so it was never men it was meant for it actually was meant for men middle-aged men that's how when it first started it wasn't meant to be used the way it is today and it needs it's broken it needs to be fixed it doesn't even take into consideration different ethnicities yeah. athletes it's just it needs to go and middle-aged middle-aged men i've been on a little bit of an f the patriarchy kick lately especially the past few weeks yes and you think about middle-aged men i mean they're getting judged the least for their bodies regardless of what their weight is and one thing in the the parenting sphere that really really irks me is how everybody loves the dad bod. It's so endearing. We love Seth Rogen because he has a dad bod and all these guys and the little, you know, the chub around the waist is cute and we like it. Uh, and then with moms, the mom bod does not have the same connotation. The mom bod needs to be fixed. The mom bod needs special tummy tuck breast lift packages from, you know, surgical doctors and it needs diet. It needs waistbands. And I'm finding, again, just through my online community, this podcast, women who do reach out with, hey, like, how do you get over? How do you deal with invasive thoughts about body, about food? Because I do not look anything like I used to as a mom in postpartum. And I hate it. I hate my body. And then I'm seeing women get into disordered eating again. It's like maybe they were like that as a teenager, got to some level of self-acceptance, and then in postpartum are now kind of falling into those behaviors again. How can how absolutely, can we kind of absolutely absolutely well? If I mean look on I mean if you even look on Instagram, yeah, it's it's how quick can you lose that that body you know that baby weight? How how quick can you lose it? And it sets this unreal expectation for women that they aren't good enough if they don't lose that baby weight quick enough. And really what it does is this whole diet culture, its goal is to keep women quiet and focused on their body and on food. Because if they're focused on their body and they're focused on food, then they don't have the brain power to think about other things and be more powerful in this society. Especially if we're not eating enough. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So yes. how, how do we break that cycle? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's about really learning to talk back to yourself mm -hmm. and to kind of reframe those negative messages that you tell yourself. And if, if you start saying to yourself, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm so fat. I'm so disgusting. I need to lose weight. I need to do this. To stop, take a minute and say, where is this coming from? Mm -hmm. Where are these thoughts coming from? Did I just see something on Instagram? Did I get triggered by a friend I saw? Did someone talk to me about their diet and how they look so much better? What is it that's bringing up for me? And then to say, stop and say, wow. And, give, and think about all the wonderful things that your body does for you that isn't based on appearance. Mm -hmm. And to really start accepting the body that you have now, because within acceptance then comes change. But you can't hate yourself into loving yourself. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That'll never, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I, had a, I had a client a while back who she just had her third child and she was feeling really uncomfortable in her body. 
and she was wearing clothes. She wasn't going to buy new clothes because she wasn't going to, she wasn't buying the big clothes because she was going to get back into these clothes. That was my so problem. That's how I said that. Just, yeah. She was just really uncomfortable in her pants all mm-hmm. day. It was making her crabby. And on her refrigerator door, she posted a picture of herself when she was much smaller as motivation. Mm. And it ended up backfiring because what it did was it ended up reinforcing the fact how much she hates herself now and how she wants to look like that. And it, she ended up, it ended up backfiring versus saying, this is why I'm now, I have three beautiful babies and I'm really going to, you know, I'm really going to tune into my body, make time for some healthy food, make time to move my body because I deserve that. Okay, Becky, we are going to take a quick break and let our listeners know who we're supported by. We are supported by Mabel's Labels. Frustrated by their children's things getting lost, mixed up, and leaving home never to return, Julie Cole and three other mom friends knew they could do better than just scribbling their kids' names on some masking tape. From there, Mabel's Labels has grown into an award-winning market-leading company loved by moms and dads and mentors and teachers and grandparents and kids alike. Firefighters firefighters everybody's gotta love them and i mean lucy loves them because she can co-create the labels with me online and she puts them in the shapes of hearts she throws cherries on them hedgehogs whatever she wants and they're so cute shane and i love them because their line of products is huge and features everything from baby bottle labels to allergy and medical alert products to sports labels to household labels and seasonal items i also like the hedgehogs The hedgehogs are adorable. Plus, they're extremely durable. Not the hedgehogs, but the labels. I mean, they're laundry, dishwasher, microwave safe, and they're 100% guaranteed. The hedgehogs are microwave safe? No, I said not the hedgehogs, but the labels. Stay with me, Shane. Sorry, sorry. So head on over to mapleslabels.ca to start creating your very own labels and use the promo code thisfamilytree15 for 15% off your order. They deliver internationally and offer free standard shipping in Canada and in the U.S. Again, that's mapleslabels.ca and thisfamilytree15. But we are also supported by... We are supported by True Earth. If you listen to our podcast, you know that Shane and I have been trying to reduce our environmental footprint for a while now. Not just trying, Alex, trying and doing. (laughs) Doing. And, you know, one way that we are doing this is through eliminating single-use plastics in our household. And, you know, with two kids and just like lots of laundry between the four of us, our laundry room has become a bit of a plastic detergent bottle graveyard. And I just felt like it needed to be tidier in that room, too. Well, thank goodness for us discovering True Earth laundry detergent strips a few months ago. We have not looked back. And not only are they space-saving, because they're literally like thin, tiny strips that just sit and allow you space for everything else, but there's no mess. Like, you know, before we found these, Shane, and I mean like three weeks ago, Betty spilled a thing of laundry detergent. It went everywhere. But you can't spill the True Earth strips. She's still grounded, in fact. The True Earth detergent comes in pre-measured soluble strips, which you simply rip apart and just put in your washer. Like, it's that easy. It's so easy. And and the best part. There's no fine print. It is that easy. And as a family with kids who have super sensitive skin, we opt for, personally, the baby detergent because it's fragrance-free, gentle on everybody's skin, and it's still so tough on dirt. Our clothes come out smelling great and, like, crispy clean. So check out True Earth Detergent at true.earth. True is spelled T-R-U. And use the promo code thisfamilytree10 to get 10% off your order. Again, that's true.earth and thisfamilytree10. And now let's get back to our interview with Becky. And how many women at some point in their lives, if you know offhand, I, I know I'm springing this on you, 
but I'm just thinking of it now. But do you know offhand a, a ballpark estimate of how many women have disordered eating at some point in their life? Well, I can tell you that every 52 minutes, an individual loses their life to an eating disorder. I can tell you that the dieting industry is a $75 billion a year industry. I can tell you in numerous surveys, uh, 85% of women are dissatisfied with how they look. How many people struggle with disordered eating? I, you know, I don't know, but I would have to say quite a few, and I would have to say the majority of the population at one time or another is unhappy with their body. Yeah. And I'm seeing even now with social media being so prevalent, even, I mean, boys, it's in their face more now too, a standard that they have to live up to. And that's like, it's, it's everybody. It's, it's absolutely everybody across the board. Of course, um, it is just an extra level of in your face for girls. Uh, And, and that really scares me. So we have two daughters. And what was it like spring of 2020, right before everything hit the fan, we were interviewing a woman named Erin. She has the Instagram page, Raw Beauty Talks. And we were talking to her with, I was with Shane. He was in on the interview about not using words like pretty and things like that when you're talking to your kids. And Shane just burst into tears and he couldn't stop crying because he was like, oh my God, like I say these things all the time. I don't want to contribute to my girls growing up and feeling like that. And it was a huge moment of realization for us. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we – and like Shane, he's really conscious about what he's eating and he likes the scale. And I like the scale when I'm trying to eat, quote, unquote, healthier because, I mean, this mentality is not healthy. Uh, But we do that behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. not in front of the kids. But I I think even just for our own – Six, you know, mm-hmm. we, we kind of need to abandon that too. But, you know, how do you, if you do have growing children, whether it came from you or their peers or whatever, how do you possibly identify an eating disorder or body dissatisfaction mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. your own kid? Mm-hmm. So a couple of things, just going back to the scale, mm-hmm. that's a work in progress. And yeah. I think for you know, I'd start to think about it. Do I need this number to validate whether I should like my body or not? Yeah. Do I need this scale to tell me I'm healthy or can I feel it within my body? Do my clothes feel better? Do I feel more comfortable? Do I have more energy versus a number on the scale? So I'm just throwing that. No, no, I know Um, we're working on it. Yeah, you work on it. So look, children as young as three can start to have body dissatisfaction. That's heartbreaking. It is. I have. Um, so, I, so, so yes. So, and it starts with um, kids who start talking about their body. My tummy's too big. Or in preschool, someone told me I shouldn't be eating my potato chips because my belly's fat. What? Or absolutely. Or, you know, someone in kindergarten saying that the other kids were making fun of them because um, their legs were chubby. Oh my God, Becky. That so kids who start to talk about their body in a way that is negative. And I think it's hard because our first, re- our first reaction as a parent is to say, no, you're not, you're beautiful. You're, you're such a great kid and you, you're funny. 
And what I would say is kind of take a deep breath, settle back and ask your child, oh, what's going on for you? Did someone say something at school? Or for older kids, how long have you felt that way? And to get them to talk about what's going on, because when you tell them how beautiful they are, it's really invalidating of their feelings. And, that, and what we really want to do as parents is we want our kids to feel seen and heard. And that's the relationship we want to start really building at a young age, that they feel seen and they feel heard, their, their feelings are valid, right? And beginning young so to start that building that relationship so that they'll want to talk with you about what's going on. But kids are really perceptive. And if they feel like what they're telling you is too much and they see you're getting stressed or anxious or nervous, they're not going to, they're not going to talk with you about it. So, you know, helping your child to talk about that, Mm -hmm. helping your child with hunger and satiety, helping them determine when they're hungry, what they're hungry for, Mm -hmm. allow them to build that body trust, giving them a lot of opportunity for movement. Like when you were growing up, it sounds like you had a lot of different opportunities for movement. It doesn't mean they have to play a sport, Mm -hmm. but it means like give opportunities. Do you like to bike as a family, hike as a family, Mm -hmm. go swimming as a family and talking with your kids about how does that, how does that make your body feel Mm -hmm. afterwards? Like, does it give you more energy? Do you feel more connected? So those types of things to model for your child. Mm -hmm. And okay, so if your child is older, like if you're dealing with a teenager, so I used to be a vice principal for a really wealthy school. Mm -hmm. And we take the kids overseas uh, for a credit, a high school credit in the summer. And, you know, I'd be dealing with all the, the issues. So there was a girl... And it came to my attention one night. I was doing their, you know, checks in the hotel room, making sure everybody was in their room. And she was throwing up in the bathroom. I thought she was drunk and throwing Mm. up. And then she came out sober as a judge and said, no, I just, you know, I ate a lot tonight. We stopped at a, um, like a stand, like a street food stand. I ate too much. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just purging it out. So cavalier so cavalier and her friends were all kind of there too and she's saying this in front of everybody and I'm like kind of scratching my head because nobody's reacting Mm -hmm. nobody's like oh this is a big reveal and then in our conversation it came to light so these are all 16 year old girls all seven of them frequently Mm -hmm. purged whether or not they were binging they frequently Mm -hmm. purged Mm -hmm. and they were all super slim super conventionally beautiful. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'm like, okay, this is shocking information. None of them seem to think there's anything weird with this. And I called the parents and the parents knew and didn't think anything too much of it either. So what do you do if perhaps you're not like that parent, but maybe you're a parent like me Mm -hmm. where this would be alarming, but to your kid, it's maybe it's normalized within their group because I've seen that. Like I've seen it become so normalized. So how do you, how do you attack it like that when your kid thinks there's nothing wrong with it? Well, that just tells you about our culture and how far diet culture has come. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Look, if a a kid is 
purging, kid is over exercising, which is, you know, exercising when injured, exercising when ill, having to exercise, missing out of things, missing activities because of exercise, skipping meals, um, focusing on food, weight, fat, or calories. There's something going on. It needs to be approached. And I think with purging over exercising, a lot of times um, parents don't see that as something that is really dangerous and it is. And so a couple things, one is talking with parents about what is happening. Um, and that, you know, so you have these seven girls and a lot of, and that does happen quite frequently mm-hmm. with girls is they, they share behaviors yeah. and they share dieting tips and they share very unhealthy weight loss strategies, which is really common on TikTok, which I've also spoken up a lot about. And the issue is that if you have these eight girls, right, and maybe eight of them will start off doing this behavior, really dieting or purging. Um, and after a couple of weeks, you know, half of them might say, you know what, I'm sick of this. I'm, I'm done with this. I don't want to do this anymore. And they'll just go on and it won't become an issue. The other half, it'll develop into a full-blown eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So it's, so that's just one thing to know that genetics plays a, a huge role in development of an eating disorder, as well as do many other factors, such as societal expectations, family issues, family dynamics, personality traits. So it's really important for people to get the help that, I, that they need. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing would be getting an assessment. The organization Meta, we do, we do assessments from people all over the globe. We can do it virtually and figuring out what's going on for your child and then getting them the help they need. And what we know about eating disorders is that the sooner someone gets treatment, the better and the quicker chances of recovery. And so I've worked with lots and lots of adolescents where they've started, they've started this pattern. We've immediately gotten them some treatment. They were monitored by their primary care physician. They saw a dietitian nutritionist to help them um, manage their food. And then we talked about what was going on and it was a very short lived. It was kind of like a bump in the road for these adolescents. So getting someone treated sooner, it's not eating disorders aren't a phase. Mm -hmm. They're not a phase. They're not something that oh, they're going to do for a couple of months, they're going to lose weight, and then it's going to be all gone. And it is the more it takes hold of the brain, the worse that it is, and it's the harder, harder to let go. And unfortunately, what, you know, eating disorders, as much as they're about food, they're really about emotions, and they start to serve a purpose. So, you know, the girl you were talking about who is purging, it might start off as, oh, I'm just going to, I want to lose weight, which by the way, purging, you never lose weight. You lose water and minerals and nutrients, don't lose fat. Yeah. Um, it might show up on the scale, a couple of pounds, but it's all water. As soon as you hydrate, it's going to come right back. But it might start off for her as a weight loss strategy, but then it becomes a coping strategy. Oh, you know what? I was really mad. So I purged and I felt better. Well, I was really upset. So I purged and I felt better. It's like, it's like a control thing almost, right? Trying to regain. It can be for, for many people, it can be a control issue in a way to manage their emotions. 
And if you don't learn as a young age to, to manage your emotions and to talk about your feelings, which is why I was talking earlier, how important it is that your child feel listened to and heard, that is the key part to that, that key, that's a key part of prevention. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, just say you recognize that your child has an eating disorder, you get them seen, you're doing different things. How can you support them? Like as a parent, how would I be able to support my child in recovery without, especially teens? Like I, I know that sometimes they cringe, like their parent can just do something so loving, but then the teen sees it as, sorry, my kids are going crazy outside right now. They're with my husband. I hope you can't hear that. <laughs> but how do how can you be there and support your your child or your teen through this without hampering the process or setting it back, I guess? Right. So number one, get support for yourself as parents. We have a free support group every Monday night for parents just for that purpose. So that you get support for yourself because it is very challenging to see someone you love hurt themselves. So to get support for yourself, to talk as much as you can about emotions and, and, and asking your child, what's going on for you? How can I support you? What can I do to help you? Not to focus on uh, food unless you're doing family-based treatment, which is uh, uh, learning to eat with your child and really becoming the eating disorder coach. But family meals, really important. Modeling, uh, healthy eating and healthy exercise and what that looks like, managing your own self-care, talking about your feelings and how you manage your feelings and to be supportive as much as you can and compassionate. And look, if people with eating disorders could just eat or stop eating, we wouldn't have so many eating disorders. It's not right. Yeah. It's as easy as that. Yeah. And getting them the support that they need and letting them know that you are going to be with them every step of the way and that this is challenging and that you are going to do what you can to support them and love them and help them to get better. Yeah. And honestly, it's such a fear of mine. It, it's such a fear of mine. I know we're taking steps now to, like you said, just like create that that open dialogue, but it's still, it causes me so much anxiety thinking that you just, because we have girls, this is something that we have a higher chance of dealing with as parents. And obviously you selfishly, cause I, I don't want to have to go through that heartbreak, but I don't want these perfect human beings in my eyes to feel that way about themselves. And it, it just, it really kills me. And th this is where the F the patriarchy mindset lately is coming from. But right. it, it really does cause me so much anxiety. And I mean, Becky, my kids are only three and one. And like, mm -hmm. I just, it makes me, it makes me sick to think about. It. And I think about it more than I should. I, I want to be able to relax, but. Mm -hmm. So remember you and your husband, they're, you're the role models. Yeah. And they're looking to you for cues on how they should feel about their bodies. So that's really important. So I would really encourage you to work on your own body image, your own body confidence, and really feel strong in your beliefs about how you feel about yourself. Do that work because it will transfer onto them. 
making food enjoyable, allowing them to be assertive and use their voice. So many people with eating disorders, their voices weren't heard growing up. Talk with them about the media, social media, and not comparing their bodies to anybody else's body. Mm-hmm. Well, tonight I can tell you, I'm letting I'm letting the three year old serve herself. I'm excited for that. Actually, I really like that. But Becky, thank you so so much. This has been a really lovely so conversation. Welcome. Where can folks, listeners, go and find you? Found your foundation, everything. Yes. Yeah, so my Instagram handle is at metafounder. You can reach us uh, also at Recover with Meta, www.metainc.org. There's a wealth of resources there, a lot of free support groups for parents and individuals struggling. Look to my Instagram for education around body image. And this was fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, I I really appreciate it. It just, it helps me. Get a get a hold of my emotions too in regards to this whole thing. But truly, thank you so much. Folks, go check out Becky. So knowledgeable, of course. But again, thank you. It was so nice meeting you. Thank you. Nice meeting you as well. Absolutely. Take care. Have a great rest of your week. That was Becky Manley. So fascinating. This whole thing about, you know, the whole conversation about eating disorders in our kids. Like it's such a fear of mine that, you know, I that kind of mentality will touch our daughters at some point. And uh, it really terrifies me because I know so few women who haven't been touched by that kind of thinking and those kinds of behaviors. Like most women that I know have had disordered eating at one point in their lives. And it scares the heck out of me. So I'm really grateful for this conversation. I thought Becky was uh, really great at navigating. Obviously, she's great. I mean, (laughs) this has been her job for decades, but, you know, just such a great person to discuss with. But with that being said, I want to get to our next interview. Just as interesting, but totally different, like total pivot of a direction. But let's talk to Jackie Siegel. But before we get to Jackie, let's tell everyone who we are supported by. We are supported by Seedlip, the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit. Crafted without alcohol, sugar, or calories, Seedlip spirits solve the dilemma of what to drink when you're not drinking, whether it's for the night, the month, or forever. Or let's just say you want to take a month-long break from alcohol, Seedlip (laughs) is still there for you. It is there for you, and it's offering a solution to, you know, being a non-drinker in an environment where your only options are water, soda, or sugary mocktails. So now you can skip the booze without feeling left out when it comes to your social life. And whether you prefer punchy citrus flavors, aromatic spices, or savory herbs, Seedlip offers a drink for every type of drinker. Seedlip has three variants, which are Spice 94, Garden 108, and Grove 42. They're all alcohol-free and have their own unique flavors, which pair so perfectly with just a splash of tonic. They can also be used to make more complex cocktails like we made tonight, and you'll find those in the Seedlip cocktail book or on their Instagram account at seedlip underscore na. So head on over to seedlipdrinks.com or .ca and use the promo code thisfamilytree10 for 10% off your favorite non-alcoholic spirit. This is available in Canada and in the U.S., and again, that is seedlipdrinks.com and thisfamilytree10. And now let's get to our interview with Jackie. Hi. Hello, hello. Hi. How are you? So good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. I've been, I've got so much going on. It's so stressful. My life. (laughs) What's going on at the moment that's stressing you out? Well, um, I'm actually shooting a TV show right now that comes out next spring. Oh, wow. uh, What, what show? It's basically, um, 
about my life, but I, I'm never really not allowed to talk about it too much, okay. to, but to say, you know, but I can come back on your show probably in January or February where I can tell, tell all. Oh, amazing. <laughs> but, but you will be acting in this or is this a reality show? Reality. Oh, yeah. nice. Okay. Yeah, everyone wants to see whatever happened to Versailles and stuff. Exactly. Um, I'm going to show the world. So that is, you know, we are big fans of that documentary. It is fascinating. It made me feel so many different things when I watched it, Jackie. And I thought that you had uh, such a unique personality in that. And it, it really brings you into your life watching Queen of Versailles. But I wanted to ask, what it, what was the impetus of that documentary? <laughs> what does impetus mean? <laughs> like, like, why was it made in the first place? Oh, oh, that's kind of a long story. Well, but I'll make it short. My husband and I, we on our honeymoon, um, actually, when we went on our honeymoon, I, I got pregnant on it. And Good honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> we were in France. We saw Versailles. And on the way back from our honeymoon, uh, on, on the plane, he says, "We, um, I want to build a larger home than what we live in now. And we lived in like a $250,000 home. And, and he says, and he drew it on the back of a napkin. And he said, we're going to name it Versailles because we're going to fill it up with children. And I mean, I was already, we already had three kids together. I was pregnant with my fourth. Um, we took a late honeymoon because I kept getting pregnant. So he finally <laughs> found a window where I wasn't pregnant. And then you got pregnant on the honeymoon. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, and I'm thinking on the plane, it's like, who names a house Versailles or who names mm. a house? Who, who gives a house a name? I mean, it doesn't, didn't make any sense to me. And we had no idea that it was going to be like one of the largest homes in America when we were building it. Maybe he did and he just wasn't telling me, mm -hmm. but it looked awfully small on the back of a napkin on our drink napkin on the plane. And uh, I went out to the Versace opening on Rodeo drive uh, like 12 years ago. And Lauren Greenfield was there. And like, I was the only one that wasn't like anyone. Like I was a nobody. <laughs> and, and she's like, because you've got like, you know, people like Beyonce, J-Lo, mm -hmm. you know, all the A-listers. And then there's like me. And she's like, like, who are you? Like, why are you? Why were you invited? I said, I don't know. They invited me. What am I going to, you know? And I wanted to come to the opening of the store. I said, I guess I must buy a lot of their their product or something, you know? Good customer. <laughs> where, where maybe a lot of people get it for free, but they, you know, give back advertisement or something. But mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah. And so she, she said, what do you do? When I showed a picture of my private jet with, it was my Christmas card I had on me with me and my husband in front of it. And all of the kids like stair steps going down, sitting on the wing of the plane. And I said, I'm, I'm building a big house. But I, I mean, I'm just a mom, you know, we're making babies. And she says, you know, I want to come visit you. And she did. And she decided to start filming me. And that's like then the rest is history then mm -hmm. it developed that the, the, this developed into like a like a financial documentary yeah. basically. So, so originally the idea was we're going to film this documentary it's going to be about this 
big, beautiful home that's the biggest house in America. And it's going to be fascinating based on that. Then, of course, the housing crisis came along and then it just became this whole other documentary that was fascinating for a whole different set of reasons. Well, and uh, it was kind of lucky for for her and I guess kind of like in general, um, as, as far mm-hmm. as the fame of, of the, the success of the documentary, because when we stopped construction on the house, because we we needed to save our capital to save jobs during that time. And when the bankers like pulled out on us, you know, the house wasn't that important anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and we're like a mom and pop company. So we care more about our employees. So we stopped construction on the house and, and she's in the middle of filming had all this money invested. And she's like, now what? And, but then she kept rolling the cameras and followed the journey that we all struggled in 2008 mm-hmm. on different levels. Everyone from billionaires to um, the, the middle income millionaire family with their small business all the way down to one of our nannies who's minimum wage. Yeah. And so she showed a slice of life, how it affected each. And I think that was even more interesting and more important than mm-hmm. showing construction on this house. Now, originally, I think the idea was probably going to be capturing you when you're happy, you're excited, going through maybe some trials and tribulations related to the, the struggles of building a house from scratch. However, obviously, the the housing crisis caused a lot of financial stress on you and your family, which caused you to be filmed under extreme stress. Now, when you look at that, when you're watching the finished product, are you happy with how it came out? Or are you like mortified? Like, Oh, I didn't think they were going to show these certain aspects of my personality or life. Um, no, no, I I wasn't mortified. I mean, I think maybe my husband was, (laughs) (laughs) because they made me look nicer. I mean, if I had known it was going to be so like well seen numbers wise, I would have like maybe put some more makeup on or something, you know, (laughs) maybe put some shoes on. I was barefoot at the time, (laughs) but, uh, but my husband, I mean, you know, he, it, it, it didn't make, he feels it didn't make him look that good. And, and, you know, I mean, we're over it and mm-hmm. things are going great now. Um, COVID was another setback. I believe it. Yeah. yeah uh, we stopped construction again. Well, we slowed down on construction mm-hmm. during COVID because with all the restrictions that we were forced to, we couldn't have all the employees and so close together, you know, but we were all like on, on lockdown, mm-hmm. you know, like, we just, like isolated ourselves. So, so that was rough. All of these, you know, these setbacks, and I mean, like, when we hit a financial setback, Shane and I, like, it's it's hard, but it's still not dealing in the amount of money that you and David are dealing in. And our life wouldn't be as hugely impacted, right, as yours was, or could have been if things were to get worse in the housing crisis. So I, I was just curious, when you guys were living it, Because as I was watching the doc, I was trying to put myself in your shoes, kind of. And while you were living it, did you still realize that, like, you were in a better position than most people in America? Or was it hard to get that kind of perspective because just kind of your world's crashing around you? I almost feel I was in that we were in a more difficult situation because when the bankers are telling you to fire 
half your employees straight away. And we, we had um, over 10,000 employees. This is just fire them. That's what the bankers are. Fire them. Cut your, you know, cut the, the, mm-hmm. uh, your salaries in half. Give it, you know, take, you know, and the people that, that are left reduce their salaries, you know, and, and it was just so devastating that my husband didn't. We kept the, the, the jobs open. This is during the 2008 crisis. And then they gave him a second time. And they said, we gave you three months to fire half the people in your company and reduce their salaries. And my husband said, I can do that. And he said, well, this is the third strike. We're, you know, if, um, we're, we're going to do it ourselves. And that's how the, the pressure. So that's finally when my husband decided we will forfeit our Las Vegas project back then, which was um, the Westgate Planet Hollywood. We forfeited that with several hundreds of millions of dollars, gave it to the bank to get them off our back to save the jobs of our employees because there's no freaking way that we would ever be told to fire our employees mm-hmm. because of, of, of a young banker that, prom- that pretended to be our friend when they're giving out loans and uh, offering our executives golfing trips. And then now they, they have no heart. Yeah. And, and, and that's not how we operate. I mean, it makes me want to cry right now how, how mean they were because they didn't care about our employees. And thank God my husband didn't go public because had he ever gone public, they would have had full control and just like get rid of people just like that, mm-hmm. you know, but we're a mom and pop shop. I mean, we're actually, I just found out because um, I, I um, was out in Las Vegas. And I, I met with the, the governor was at this event that I was at and, and the, the mayor of Clark County. And they said that my husband's company, the casino is one of the last family owned ones in casinos in Las Vegas. No way. And I think treasure Island might be the other one. Is it Phil Ruffin or something out there? Yeah. So um, every, everything else, MGM, all, all that, even Steve Wynn's property, it's all publicly traded right now. We're the last one standing right now. So obviously you, you bounced back the, the business bounced back, but at its worst, how close was it to all going away because the, you know there's a part in the dock where uh david's monitoring the lights and how how long people have the lights on how dire was it because there's also the scene where you're eating the two thousand dollar caviar <laughs> in the middle of all that <laughs> which seemed to rub people the wrong way but I'm, I'm not sure if they understood how close it was or how much money you actually had i don't know if i'll ever a hundred percent know how close but the thing is my husband has always, and to this date, he's walking up and down the hall, shutting out the lights to this date. And we're on top. I mean, you know, we've, our company's on top right now and we're doing amazing. And he's still shut out the lights, you know, somebody's got to do it. And I, I guess he, re- he worked, he grew up like he uh, was born during the great depression and he still thinks a loaf of bl- a bread is five five cents. And then when he gets like a, a, a $2,000 electric bill, he said, well, we, you know, it's because we left the lights on all night. So he goes through and, you know, so of he's course. still like that. And I think there's a lot of husbands in America that can relate to when they look at the electric bill, like 
if you get an electric bill like three or four hundred dollars a month, that could have really been a hundred fifty if you shut out the lights. 100%. So it's like that type of thing. Yeah, I'm definitely like that to some extent. But <laughs> if I see? had a billion dollars, <laughs> and it doesn't matter because they're always going to think the same way. Right. You know, but but it's about save, you know, conserving mm-hmm. energy and stuff. Sure, so yeah, it's mm-hmm. all good. That's true. Okay, so you know, Jackie, you have like such an interesting life ups and downs tragedy just getting through these these huge moments right even before you met david and people in in a different position than you may fantasize about being rich about having the life that you are currently leading do you ever fantasize about you know what would have happened if i stayed an ibm engineer and married a middle-class guy, didn't marry a super rich guy. Like, do you ever fantasize about what kind of life that would be? I don't fantasize about that because that was my plan in life. Mm -hmm. I had a plan from uh, when I was in like high school, like the ninth grade, I knew that I wanted a middle-class job. I wanted to work at IBM Mm -hmm. and that I would probably meet someone in college and have 1.2 kids or and I wanted like just a hundred thousand dollars. I had it all planned. So, cause I, I'm very like, you know, that way. And, and then I, when I went to RIT for my engineering degree, the photographers, cause that's one of the big um, photography institutes in America as well. They would use me as a model. And then they said, Oh, you should go in. You get, you're getting free photos, go down to New York city. And that's where I kind of got spoiled with like looking up at like all these amazing or the uh, restaurants, the skyscrapers. And, and that's when I kind of realized I wanted more in life than what I had planned out. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that my life was going to be like this. I thought maybe I'd have a penthouse in New York and marry someone from Wall Street. And that was like, you know, and then we'll have our 1.2 children and a house in the Hamptons, you know. But I didn't know it was going to be like this. Mm-hmm. like So extreme. But, you know, I don't feel like in my mind, like, I don't feel like I'm a billionaire. I, like, I, I mean, I bought this. Uh, this was uh, like $8, this dress that I'm wearing. I like it. You know, and and I'm very comfortable. And like, I don't I don't have to sh- show off. I don't care about flaunting money. I mean, and I, I do so much with our foundation. I mean, I, I'm actually like super tired because um i've been spending so much time on our foundation and giving speeches and reaching out to the our youth Mm -hmm. um that's more important to me because we have a huge drug problem especially since um with since covid and with all the kids staying home last year they're they're very isolated there are sports you know that they have to stop doing sports or their outlets like Mm -hmm. other clubs and it's been really rough on everyone including adults too, because people lost their jobs, their parents maybe not don't have the money that they did mm-hmm. because of the job loss. And they're turning to drugs. Yes, yeah. They're escaping, whether it's because of mental illness, depression, peer pressure, or, or even boredom. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized that since I started my foundation with, since I lost my daughter when she was 18 years old, uh, five years ago, the drug deaths from drugs are, has over doubled mm-hmm. because of all the fentanyl and, and these no one, when you buy drugs off the street, 
it, you don't know what's mixed in there. And it's the things that are mixed in there that are really killing yeah, everyone. And, you know, I, I want to talk about those changing priorities, Jackie, because like even even in the doc, right, we talk about what is it, the like $17,000 crocodile boots or snakeskin. And, you know, you today have a different vibe about you, you have a different mentality. And of course, you have been through so much since then. But in what ways have you been profoundly changed or how what's that evolution been like over the past 10 years? Yeah, it's almost like if like a, if I get like an amazing purse or something nowadays, I'd like it to be understated, but like I know the value of it. Like if it's as if it's real alligator, I don't really care like if someone because there's so many printed alligator, but I don't I don't need to like. I hope, like in general, I hope people think it's fake because then, then they, you know, I don't <laughs> um, get stalked. I won't get stalked at Publix, you know, mm-hmm. when I go grocery shopping and someone, you know, take it. You know, <laughs> but yeah, so it's more like that. I mean, I want to look nice on certain occasions or wear the right thing when when I am on camera. Although, I hope you're not offended that I wear an eight dollar dress. <laughs> I love it. No, we no, I'm we wearing are, a hoodie right now. We're very so, yeah. much in a uh, <laughs> sustainability when it comes to clothes. Anyway, we like it. But you know what? I'll tell you one thing. When I told my husband, he because he liked it on me, and it's just it's stretchy and and stuff is comfy. Um, and when I told him how much it was for for Christmas, he sent um, one of his guys to the same store where I bought this and he bought one for me in every color. Like this is the purple one. And then he got me one in blue and pink and, and those are my Christmas presents. But yeah, and I didn't mind, you know, so I got everything for like under $50 and, and, but it was the thought that counted because he knew I really liked the dress. And, and the your husband knows you like multiples of things too. So yeah, yes. cause it's easy. I don't, I don't get stressed out to go get dressed in the morning when, you know, they're all like right there lined up, you know? Right, exactly. That's what I hate dressing myself <laughs> or putting my outfits together. That's what I hate. Oh, I'm the same way. But I, I wanted to get back to your foundation for a second. And the reason you started it in the first place was obviously, tragically, your daughter had an overdose. Mm-hmm. Now, it's obviously tough to talk about, but uh, was there any signs of this happening? Did you have an inkling that maybe she had a problem or maybe she was a recreational user or anything like that along those lines? Well, I, she had come up to me one day and she says, mom, I need to go to rehab. And at at that point, I didn't realize that she had a drug problem. And I'm thinking, why do you, why do you need to go to rehab? Uh, She was addicted to Adderall. And at that point she did experiment with like a lot of other things, but I just didn't know about it because she would have sleepovers at friends' houses. So she wasn't around us when she was experimenting with those drugs but the big thing she needed to get off was the Xanax, actually, Xanax. She went to rehab. I, I ch- went and check her, checked her in. And sure enough, she had huge doses of Xanax that she would buy from a, a guy at school that put it in pill presses. And then while she was in the rehab, she, she was 18. She met a 26-year-old man, mm. heroin addict, that was there by court order. She fell in love. They were both sober in rehab. And when they got out, first thing he did is take her and get her first hit of heroin. And a month later, she was dead. So it happened that fast. Like, I didn't even have a a chance to really see it coming. 
but it was, it was like that. She did leave a diary behind. And so I, I have her diary and it's actually this one, Victoria's voice. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's the, yes. the book you, you published. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it's on Amazon and it's um her actual diary is in here and it's all like with um uh, uh like her actual handwriting just um like um in the old days we say xerox but copied and um so this and in there is, is i felt like after reading i know her better now mm-hmm. than before because it goes into like um uh, like the, her journey of learning how to get involved with drugs and and from when she was sober and she had a love-hate relationship and stuff. I really feel like it took me several years to pu- publish her ju- her journal, her diary, because it's just so personal. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. And for the people listening, you and I both know this talking, but for the listeners, she had written down that if her diary was found, she gave full permission for it to be published. She had sent it one night when, before rehab. She has sent that text to a friend of hers because she didn't think she would uh, uh, survive the Xanax overdose, which, you know, she wasn't even at my house. And and unfortunately, that friend didn't ever give me that text. The the things were that bad with Victoria when she was alive, because I I certainly would have intercepted at that point. But I didn't get that text till after she passed away. And I guess the friend felt it was the right thing for them to follow through with it, Victoria's wish. Mm-hmm. And and it was rough. So I, I published it. And I really feel that it could be an insight for parents to see, to read this, um, because they can see the same thoughts and craziness can be going behind closed doors with their own teenagers. So it can help them open their eyes. And I do have like my own things that I wrote in there like in, in the white pages that um, like warning signs and, and resources and where to go for help. And I also think it could help to other teenagers to read this, to understand their thoughts are not alone. I mean, with the bullying, the, the peer pressure and, and the wanting of, to do drugs or, you know, I hate my parents, like all that stuff that it's normal. It's mm-hmm. all part of growing up. And, and the thing is, is I'm sure you all know, like a lot of this bullying stuff, it never ends. No. Yeah. As adults, I'm sure you've got people that hate you and say, you know, like that, that love you to death. But then you get other people like, you know, you know, I, you know, I, I hate their, you know, what are they talking about or this or that? You know, you always get the the negative people, but it, it's it's just part of life. I mean, you can't control mm-hmm. them, but you can control and all the positive things that you do in your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm like what you all do and 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 I you guys are just so amazing. Now um sometimes trauma can be triggering for people to maybe make them start experimenting with alcohol or drugs. How have your other seven children because we I don't not sure if we mentioned in this interview but you have seven other children. How did how did they respond to the death of their sibling? We um it was a very dark time. For our family, you know, you would have thought by losing a sibling, you'd be brought closer together. But I got like really kind of like in my shell, kind of depressed. My husband uh, clammed up and for, for several months. Yeah, we all dealt with it in our own way. And it was really hard. 
but the kids were so traumatized, you know, seeing their sister there in the casket and putting her down in the earth that uh, they said they would never, ever touch drugs. And after like a few months of our mourning time, my husband and I, we kind of snapped out of our, I don't know, the gloominess cloud, you know, and we decided to um, move forward with the Victoria's Voice Foundation. And uh, like, I I just felt like a sign from Victoria, like she wanted me to go on with my life. So I I did like this thing called Fireball Run, you know. What is that? Uh, Fireball Run. It's, it's a, a race, like it, it's a charity event, but you race like um, several thousand miles for nine days and you pass out missing children posters. And we, we actually, it does resolve, like we'll put them on the, like every time we stop for gas, we tape up the posters on, in the bathrooms and all that. So it's actually quite a, a fun event. And it's also like a TV show type of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that really kind of opened my eyes and realized I could do really do something for saving people from drugs. That this was for missing children, which was very fulfilling. And um, so that's when we moved forward with, with Victoria's Voice. And we restarted Versailles again because we want to throw our, like, uh, use our house for charity events for the foundation. And I, I noticed in interviews and whatnot that David, who uh, typically is very into the business, you could say it's bordering on obsession, or he's a workaholic, in other words, with his business, but he's dedicated a fair portion of his life to uh, solving the drug crisis, if it can even be solved. What do you think is the first step into solving this problem in terms of drugs in the world and children using them? Well, when my daughter died, or our daughter, he realized, because we started the Victoria's Voice Foundation, he had two piles of paper on his desk. One paper for the foundation, which saves lives. Another pile of paper that was for his business that makes money. And he decided to take that pile of paper that for business that makes money and delegate to his company. And he said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life on our foundation, which saves lives. Because after the the pain and the anguish and everything that we got from that, we want to try to prevent as many loss, unnecessary loss of lives as as possible. That's that's our our goal. I mean, we were just on the show um, recently, still out right now, Below Deck. Yes. Yes. And and he's got his son died six months before we filmed with him. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, and whose son died? The, the captain and and Jackie. Oh. I actually, I heard that that was like the one thing the producers told you guys not to say, there but then was. it would, you, you couldn't help it because how can you help it in that situation when well, you have that one thing in common? Yeah, with the below deck, and this is for uh, Antigua, this just uh, past season, they brought us into like kind of like before we got on the yacht with our group into the, the bar uh, on the, the dock. And that was what, like our meeting area. And they said, um, there's really no rules. This is a true charter. Be yourselves. Enjoy. And they said, oh, by the way, there's oh, just one thing, just one rule. Just please. Um, it's very sensitive right now. Captain Lee. Um, He's very private and doesn't want anyone to, you know, t- or doesn't want to talk about like the loss of his son from the drug, from drugs. And 
and that's like, oh yeah, no problem. We respect that. We lost our daughters, like you know, so we understand that. And then, so then we do um, the parade, you know, when we all march down the dock, and they made us do it like two times. I said, this will be the only time you have to do like any that we'll, we're going to tell you like what to do, like directed. So we have to do that a couple times. Then as soon as we get up on the yacht, there's Captain Lee. And my husband's like the first person there. And he says, David Siegel. And Captain Lee, I'm so sorry about your loss. Like, first thing. <laughs> did, did he get in trouble? Well, they kept filming. So I guess not. I mean, I guess they, they decided the show must go on. <laughs> it's tough not to say it. Because yeah. when, once you hear something like that, it's in your head. And it's 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 yeah. hard to avoid. And Yeah. You know, Jackie, I think of all these, you know, putting your life out there in Queen of Versailles, right? That first dock. And now with Below Deck, like Mediterranean, Antigua, and then your oh, show. And also, um, the wife swap, celebrity wife swap yes. with the, the Londons is back on Hulu. And on Discovery Plus, Discovery Plus is going to, I think they're going to have the, the Queen of Versailles on, on there, the, yeah. the documentary again. So, yeah, they keep bringing it back out. Yeah, and then, and then with the show that you have coming out in the spring that we will know more of when time comes. You will absolutely know more. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like, especially with Queen of Versailles, the majority of your kids were so little and they've kind of grown up putting these very vulnerable moments, like this family crisis on TV, right? And then even talking about Victoria um, on Below Deck and you know, they're in the public eye as much as you are. What's their take on it? Like, how, how do they feel about being brought up that way? Do they love it? Do they shy away from it? No, no, they, they hated it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, once the movie came out, and I think that that didn't help Victoria because Victoria was like a, a flower child type of thing. Like, that was her attitude. Like, she, she made her own tie-dye t-shirts and stuff. And she wanted, she wanted to go to public school when she got picked up. We always had to pick her up like in an old SUV. If I showed up with a Bentley or something, she'd run around the side of the school and she'd freak out because she didn't want people to know she came from money. She wanted to be just like in her way, normal, like, you know, and accepted that way. And then once the documentary came out, then they said, oh, you got a rich dad. And that's when like all the people with the you know pushing drugs and you know hey you know like mm-hmm. but you know they're hanging out like you know give us you know like and started getting her high so that she like buy the drugs for everyone i guess so you know it's i so it's more like that so it's kind of like and she got bullied and stuff you know love you you know you got a rich dad like so it all played together mm-hmm. but now some of the kids they're through that and my young youngest girls they, they really don't like being on camera so much they're in ninth grade but the other kids they're starting to like wanting to do it now mm-hmm. so so that's the thing that um it's it's kind of good now mm-hmm. but yeah i think it's probably not right to have the young young kids on on camera you know but sometimes with documentaries you have to do that mm-hmm. yeah if you could have done it again, what what do you think you would have done differently with the documentary? Well, I 
was not in control of it. And I mean, I, I have to um, give, you know, the Lauren Greenfield just credit for, for making a very interesting story. But I think what I would have done if I had any control is at the end, given it like an absolute ending instead of leaving like a cliffhanger. Right. Mm-hmm. Because at the end, no one knew what mm-hmm. happened at the end. They didn't know what happened to Versailles. They didn't know what happened to me and my husband's marriage. You know, yes. all, all the, 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 the unanswered things. Because when, when the movie ended, you think like me and my husband are getting divorced. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, uh, they, they thought he lost his company. They don't, I mean, I would have like probably wrapped it up at the end and let them know that the truth mm-hmm. rather than make it seem like we lost all that. All right, Jackie, we're going to take a quick break and let our listeners know who we're supported by. We are supported by Bravado Designs. Supported on our podcast, but also supported on my breasts. Yeah, your breasts. My I'm breasts. not supported by Bravado Designs. <laughs> well, I am for the podcast. It's complicated. But. <laughs> but Bravado Designs, and this is the uncomplicated part, just makes the best bras that you can get your hands on. I became acquainted to them when I was breastfeeding Lucy for the first time and needed a great nursing bra. And these are just no fuss. They are so practical, so easy to use, and they look great under your clothes. But now, even though I'm, you know, coming on to my the end of my breastfeeding journey with Betty, they have an everyday collection. So I have no need to fear because their new everyday collection has no clips. They're not just for nursing mothers. And they can continue to support me as I go through life. So you can get your hands on the nursing bras at bravadodesigns.com or you can head to the Canadian website for access to their everyday collection at ca.bravadodesigns.com. But regardless of which website you go to, use the promo code thisfamilytreat20 for 20% off your whole order. Again, that's bravadodesigns.com and thisfamilytreat20. And now let's get back to our interview with Jackie. You know, you said, you know, leaving it at that cliffhanger of maybe you and your husband getting divorced. You don't know where that relationship is. Jackie, one thing, you know, in the times that I've seen Queen of Versailles, one thing that I'm always thinking of, and Shane knows as our listeners know this, I'm a very jealous woman. And I have a really hard time uh, being cool with things, okay? Right. And I've told him before, I'm happy never being rich or never don't want him to be famous because then I worry that all the chicks are just going to throw themselves at him because obviously I think he's super handsome. And, and I think and they will. And ex- they will. Right? So, you yes. know, you talk about at one point in the documentary that when you turn 40, David was like, oh, I'm going to trade you in for two 20-year-olds. How, how do you not lose your mind? Where, where does stability come from? Is there, if there is any stability because I wouldn't be able to deal. Like, I would die. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, it's, um, I mean, when he became, like, a billionaire and and he got his, like, first private jet and all this, it wasn't easy. Yeah. It wasn't easy. It wasn't, a, like, a, a happy time for me, you know, when, when, when he started making all that money. Because he, all of a sudden, like, all of these women did come out of the woodwork and throw themselves at them. And, and they conned them. They said, Oh, you know, I can write your life story. Like, like this one girl that wrote something like for chicken soup, like who cares about that? Wants to write his life story. Yeah. And, and, and meaning, meanwhile, she had an ulterior motive, you know? So yeah, I, I hear exactly where you're coming from. And, and it was, it was hard emotionally on the other side. 
And plus I was getting older and I wasn't skinny. And, you know, we're around all these show girls and stuff in Las Vegas and they all know he's owns the, the hotel casino now. And the thing is, you know, the girls are, they're, they're, they're always going to be an opportunist. I mean, they'll, they may be pretend to be the wife's friend, you know, to, but um, it's what they do. It's like, you know, thank God we got through that though. Yeah. So we got through that <laughs> because when, we and thank God for 2008, the crash. Because when we crashed, all those girls were gone. <laughs> Once the money was gone, Fried's on the private jet. And then my husband saw who loves him, and it was me. Yeah. So I think so. Like, cause I, I mean, I I was getting kind of scared myself. I mean, because I'm getting girls like, yeah. And uh, but I survived. I mean, we stuck through it. I was mm-hmm. there by his side through thick and thin. And I think that's when. You know, he could have gone in the, in a bad path, mm-hmm. like because he got so much money so fast, and he, I mean, or he could have been tempted to. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But uh, but thank God, like he saw, you know, once you once you don't have all this stuff, the the people like you know, you see who they uses, and I, Jackie, if I was in your position, I'd be like praying for impotency every single day. But um well if you, if you if you, if you're impotent does that mean Well then at least then at least you know that they're probably being faithful, you know. And then you can I don't know, maybe get the doctor to shoot something up in them to get it up for you. I don't know, just yeah, throwing things yeah. out there. <laughs> but But if you're impotent, isn't that just you're shooting blanks? Can't you still No, have sex? you can't you can't get it up when you're Oh, is that the same as erectile yeah. dysfunction? Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Telling me better be a good boy just from experience. Oh yeah, I'm yeah. trying. I'm trying my best. Here. You know, <laughs> uh, from my experience, yeah. so like with my husband, and thank God my husband was a good boy. And 2008 came in the right time, so yeah. he remained that way. You know, so no, absolutely. And and now at this point in your relationship, right, having been through that and through the extreme wealth so quick in the women and then the crash and everything. And now you guys are super wealthy again, like your business recovered, you guys recovered. And now do you feel like you are, you know, more equals in your relationship? Do you feel like you're at a safe place in that regard? Absolutely. Yeah. My husband, with everything that we've been through, it's like, it's more like we've grown up. Yeah. I mean, when we first got the place out in Los, or the, the casino in Las Vegas and this jet, he might have felt like a kid in, in the candy store with the, you know, all the, you know, Mrs. America's and all this stuff. And, but now he knows what's important in life mm-hmm. and the kids are all maturing and we've really like made a full circle. And I couldn't imagine life without him. And I don't think he could without me. It's like, we're going to grow old together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm well, probably already, <laughs> and like, like uh, planning elevators and, probably wheelchair ramp someday. Well, you know, kid in a candy store, he was at that time in his 70s. So I think you hold the the answer to a question a lot of women are wondering, but when do men actually grow up? If you're starting to grow up now, when do men grow up? 83, 84. I know. Some of them never do. Look like <laughs> at Anna Nicole Smith with her 95-year-old fiance, you know, mm-hmm. she married, of you know, course. so... <laughs> But but that's all about, you know, money and stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. would, would she have married him if he was not a billionaire? No. No. <laughs> would so, you have married David if he wasn't well off? He wasn't well off when I met him. He was, uh, 
actually, I think I was richer than him at yeah. the time because <laughs> I, I came in with a, my, a, my, I was recently divorced from nine years mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and he, he had three resorts when I met him. That's so, pretty well yeah, that, that's pretty well <laughs> well compared to me i guess everything's relative alex but <laughs> how do you handle that perception when people when you walk into a room people might say oh that's the trophy yeah. wife and she's with him for money like how do you handle that view of you when you yourself know it not to be true they don't do it anymore they did in the beginning they were probably all skeptical but like everyone that's close to us they know me and they know where my like hard is and where I came from. And I think um, nowadays it's really funny because when I first moved, my husband wanted me to move to Orlando. He didn't want to, I lived in Fort Lauderdale, but he said, no, we got to live in Orlando. So I moved to Orlando and whenever we would go to like an event, people would say there's David Siegel and his wife. And then after the queen of Versailles movie came out, they would say, oh, there's the queen of Versailles and her husband. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, I'm more famous than you now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think is a big misconception about you? Obviously, a lot of people would assume you weren't an engineer. Like, that's just people are going to judge yeah. you and just think, oh, she's she doesn't have the intelligence that you obviously but do I actually have. was. But yeah. Yes, but people are going to think you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, what is another misconception that you find you're – people think about you a misconception people might think about me uh oh that's a tough one because i actually don't look at my own social media i you know so i don't know what they're saying about me but uh i think most people think oh gold digger all that Mm -hmm. but after like having eight kids and i mean we're growing old together and stuff i mean and i've worked hard it's like i like i've never like I've never had a new car since I met my husband. You know, I usually get like one of the executives hands me downs when I have a car and stuff. And so I don't, I've never had like the Ferraris and the, all those sports cars with my husband. I mean, I, I'm happy with just like an SUV and stuff and actually, actually has more room and it's not so flashy. I don't care about being flashy. I like more like feeling safe and having privacy and stuff, you know? Yeah. And, and um, so I think it's more like that. I mean, I'm just happy I have a car that works, actually. <laughs> Same with us. You, know, you mentioned your eight kids, Jackie. And and I want to, I do want to touch on that, of course. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, but your, I, like, your mentality when it comes to parenting, right? What do you find the most important? Like, when your kids are grown up, and of course, you have an adopted daughter as well. What is the one thing that you want them to take away from you parenting them? Whew, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think it, it's, it's a lot of like respect for each other. And, uh, you know, like everyone like at different ages have different stages of their life. Like teenagers, you know, like we're going through some of the terrible teens right now. You know, they want to just like not have a curfew and this and that, but like, uh, I just want to all look out, you know, for each other and and think I I have like boys that are older than some of the girls that they, they do help to look out for, for, you know, for, for the girls. And I think it's about being a family union unit and, uh, 
we just can't lose track of that because family is the most important foundation in America, no matter what happens and what direction America is going or the world, you really need that family unit and, and the kids need to respect their parents no matter what. And they need to look out for their parents when the parents get older too. Is it hard for your children to even be in school knowing they don't really need school? I want my kids to get educated. I want them to have that experience. I want them to learn how to socialize. I want them to learn how to deal with how to fit in. And if, if, if they're not like, if, if I kept them just inside my house, they would never learn how to deal with that bully at the lunchroom. They would never learn how to work as a team on lacrosse, you know, mm-hmm. teamwork and, and helping that, that child that feels left behind or something. So this is all a growing process. My, my kids, uh, some of them are in high school right now. And I would never give that up in the world. And mm-hmm. thank God we're open, you know, that our, our kids can actually be in school. And I think that's the, it's like street smarts, you know? Yeah. yeah and, and I think that's more important. And, and all of my kids are going to work. I'm not going to hand them anything. Some of them are learning, um, thinking about maybe being an attorney or um, sales and marketing. So they're all going to find out their niche in the company, you know? Yeah. And, and work in their own departments. Um, some of them are in uh, real estate. Wanna, they want to do real estate development. So th- they all are choosing different aspects of Westgate. That's awesome. And Jackie, I just want to ask, so where can listeners go? Because truly, it is fascinating. And I've been telling everybody for a bit now, they need to watch Queen of Versailles and prep for having you on. Uh, because it really, I think, will... It's impactful. It's impactful for so many different ways. But where can people go? Where can listeners go to check out your shows, follow you online, see what you're up to? Okay. Well, I, I know that the, the Queen of Versailles is on Amazon. Uh, I believe it's on Hulu right now. It's like one of the recommended documentaries. And it's also going to be on Discovery Plus, uh, I think, after Christmas for, for next spring. And then next spring is when this TV I like how show. you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, the book my contract, again. I can't talk about it, but yeah, it's going to be quite amazing. I think I can just mention that we are giving the, the viewers what they want. I, I'm yeah, hoping it's so some excited. kind of Real Housewives mm-hmm. appearance. Well, it seems like it may or may not be a sequel to the Queen of Versailles film. Yeah. It may yeah. or may not. Um, but I, I do, I do or, want... Or it, may, or it may even be more fantastic. Oh, okay. Now I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, lastly, Victoria's Voice, the book, and Victoria's Voice Foundation. Where can listeners go to see that? Well, everything of my social media for Instagram and stuff is um, the real Queen of Versailles. Because so, someone already took the Queen of Versailles. So maybe it's the, <laughs> so the real Queen of Versailles. Um, we also have the VictoriaSiegelFoundation.com. And I think those are probably the best places because of. Uh, They'll navigate you through everything. That's so perfect. And, uh, oh, and, and also, I think um, they mentioned, you wanted me to mention, um, I adopted one of my daughters. Yes. 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 We had, we had seven kids. I had twins. And, and after I had the twins, one of my stepsons, well, my, my husband had five kids from before me. 
one of them said, well, are you done having kids? Because they're, they're kind of mad because I was like a baby factory. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, are you done? I said, yes, I'm done. And that was at seven kids. And then my niece, John Quill, who's in the, the movie, The Queen yeah, of, of Versailles, her mom died of a drug overdose. And DCF called me and asked me and my husband if we would adopt her. And I was nervous to ask my husband because we just had the twins. And my husband, without a doubt, he said, absolutely. So she's still with us and she's going to stay with us. And she, we have a beautiful room in Versailles for her. We're, we call it the cat room because she loves her cats. And uh, we're going to have like shelves all over the walls um, and, and for, for in her room, like for the cats to jump around. And we're going to have some fantastic stuff coming um, on that you'll all be able to see coming this spring. Well, I can't wait to see this. I know. (laughs) And I can't tell you because I can't. I can tell you're itching too. It's Jackie. It's making me crawl out of my skin. (laughs) Yeah, I'm scared to ask anymore. I feel like I'm going to get a a lawyer letter or something. (laughs) (laughs) But Jackie, truly, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really ple- a real pleasure talking to you uh, and just kind of digging in with questions we've had for ages. So we're going to have to do this again Absolutely. once I can talk about the things that I can't talk about. 100%. Perfect. Can't wait to talk about those Even things. Better. All right. <laughs> Jackie, so, so nice excited. meeting you, okay? <laughs> thank you very much and talk soon. Thank yeah, you. have a wonderful week. Right. Bye, thank Jackie. You. you guys are amazing. <laughs> thank you. That was an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. It was one for the books and one conversation that I was really looking forward to having. I loved that interview, although it was really difficult to navigate, as it usually is when you interview somebody with a different lease on life, different perspective, and somebody with probably very few of the same beliefs that you hold. But I don't think that that makes these interviews any less worth having. Yeah, well, what do you think some of the main beliefs are different? <laughs> well, I think that, just put it so simply, I think they embody almost everything right wing, and I think you and I embody almost everything left. And I just think that that kind of creeps into conversation no matter what you're talking about. So trying to stay, you know, on topic and you know, talk about family, talk about her daughter, talk about overdose and addiction, which are universal topics. I think sometimes it can get tough and you do have to have tricky footing to make sure that that conversation doesn't get lost in, you know, in politics in some form. But I thought I thought Jackie was a great interview. And I thought I think her story is fascinating. Like, I'm absolutely fascinated by her life and how they're leading it. But Shane, super fascinating. And you know what else is super fascinating? What's that? Uh, Our mailbag segment that we do with our listeners that we're about to get into right now. Well, let's have at it. Alex has received questions. She's researched it. She's going to answer them. The questions came from you, the listener. And I'm going to chime in if it's appropriate. Okay. So first question. Deborah Messing made some comments about Kim K hosting SNL. Do you think Kim gets it tough at times? I mean, people still bring up her sex tape. So first of all, did you see the Deborah Messing comments? No. So it's, Kim is hosting in this new season of SNL. Like it was announced, you know, different hosts that they're going to have. 
And Deborah Messing said something like, look, I know Kim's popular, but don't you typically have people who are promoting a show or a movie or a song on SNL? Essentially saying, don't you host people who are creatively or artistically talented? And it was just full Ouch. of spite. Yeah, it was full of spite. But then Deborah kind of got hit hard in the comments because people were like, oh, maybe they host people who have done something in the last 40 years or whatever, suggesting mm -hmm. that Deborah hasn't been active in her field. All right. So my opinion on this, okay, I think Kim ultimately and the whole Carl Jenner, Dashian family clan, they propagate a lot of things that I just hate, right? Like I'm trying to get away from consumerism, capitalism, but they, the thing that angers me most, obviously, and you guys know this listening to the podcast, but are the impossible beauty ideals that they can't even stand up to. I hate that so much with every fiber in me, but do I think Kim would be an awesome SNL host? Hell yeah. And I think she is so deserving of being in that position in the sense that she's like, oh my gosh, she's dropping she's dropping something every five minutes, like a clothing line, some collaboration and mm. a reality show. Like she is in the cultural zeitgeist. Is oh that how God. you use that? Yeah, I right? think so. And yeah. she's it's an entertainment show. This is a comedy yeah. show. Let's not take everything so seriously. Kim will be great. She can make fun of herself. Yeah. It, you don't have to act well. It's not like this job demands Meryl Streep to be hosting every week. It's going to be great. And it's we're going to have a laugh. Yeah. And that's what SNL is about. And Owen Wilson's also going to be hosting. That's amazing. I think. No, October 2nd. Is Who's tonight? Host. Does I, it start I, tonight? No, Owen Wilson's doing the premiere. All right. I'd, I'd love for it to start. I'm, I'm excited. He's never for hosted that. before, by the way. So I am a huge Owen Wilson that's fan. That's exciting. Very exciting. Well, we got to stay up for that one if we can. A second past midnight, it's <laughs> never right. Nothing good will happen. <laughs> well, if we don't have any drinks, then maybe we'll be okay. We can PBR. All right. So next question. Would you participate on my podcast? That was all that was left. It was not left by uh, a professional account, just a person. I have no this idea. This question slipped through the cracks? I have no idea. Well, I just want to say if they're listening, I have no idea what your podcast is. I don't know who you are. Reach out through a DM and then we'll chat. All right. Well, we'll <laughs> I'll just speak on my behalf. I'll do it. I don't care. <laughs> if you want to chat, I'll go on pretty much any podcast. <laughs> Shane's Shane's a cheap date. It's perfect. I you just want to chat. Yeah. No, I think And I'm good. honored anytime someone wants me on a podcast. No, I'm honored, but I just, I have zero information and go off of here. Okay. So then where do I even say yes? Like, When yes. people submit these questions, isn't there a username attached? Yeah. So yeah. So I find? guess that would answer it for me. Yeah. What's the username? I don't know what the username is. I have to go back and look at it. Okay. All right. Stay Next. tuned. <laughs> Next question. Face skincare. Okay. So she says, face skincare, your skin looks great. And I will say that- These questions are not good this week. I'm going to tell you right now. Shane, are you kidding me? Well, the ones that you're picking, will you be on my podcast? Your skin well, that looks one's great. Funny. No, the, the skincare one- like my skin is so far from perfect, um, but it has it has changed a lot in the past year. And like I've been able to manage breakouts for the most part a lot better than I have before. 
Uh, ni- I'll just, Coles and Oats, niacinamide for pimples and when you're breaking out. I get it from The Ordinary. It's like eight bucks. It's super affordable. And then I love vitamin C and vitamin E serums from Consonant. I have an awesome promo code for that. You can get until the 20, you get 10% off, 15% off for until the 26, but this will probably be released after that. This seems like capitalism or... Well, it is. This okay. is the thing. I, I'm trying... It's, it's, it's hard to distance ourselves from beauty culture and from capitalism. And this is both beauty culture and capitalism. <laughs> but Busted. No, no. And I talk, I talk about that freely. Yeah, we're all hypocrites. You can tr- Everybody's a freaking hypocrite, my gosh. But uh, yeah, and so vitamin C... Oh, the under eye masks. Shane, you like those too. The well, reusable yeah. eye masks right are amazing. Uh, and their charcoal face masks are also freaking amazing. So check those out. And uh, my promo code is just this family tree. So check that out if you like it and if you're in the market for skincare. And I always add that so that I'm not a total capitalist shill because I don't want people buying stuff they don't need. So if you say, if you're in the market for this, then here's a promo code. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. I understand that. Do you have any tips for transitioning our baby from our room to the nursery? I'm so anxious about the move. Definitely could be an anxious thing, but ultimately be happy. This is a move that's going to make your life so much better, so much more relaxing. Like you're going to have your bedroom back. When are we getting our bedroom back? Well, we have a different bedroom now. The baby took the master. We are now in the guest bedroom. Oh, but when Roseanne sleeps here, we have to go back in that room. When is Betty getting out of our master bedroom? When she's done crying in the middle of the freaking night. But so give me I can a time frame, with, like a couple I, th- I thought it was going to be this month, but now she decided to do bad sleep patterns again. This is a tough phase of life, eh? Shane, you're telling me. Anyway, first thing I suggest, make sure you have a good monitor. For me, a big part of not being able to sleep properly even when Lucy was out of our bedroom was just like I was worried about SIDS constantly so with Betty we ended up getting a monitor that tracks her breathing we got a Miku and that made it easier on that end but prepare yourself for a longer bedtime like if you go into it thinking okay the first week is going to be really freaking hard and bedtime is going to be long it's going to be tedious and I'm going to be really exhausted by the time I get downstairs then anything better than that is just gravy, like you're good. Uh, Next, try getting the baby to take naps in the crib during the day before you even do the bedtime transition. So that way they get comfortable, they get comfortable with their atmosphere. It'll make it way smoother, trust me on that one. And some people, uh, they like staying in the room during the initial stage of like baby falling asleep, uh, just because you know, then the baby can smell you. They sense you in there and whatever. I did not like doing that personally, so I didn't. And we just, we had our babies cry for like five to 10 minute intervals each. And we we did it that way. But yeah, you'll be okay. It'll be hard for a week and then you'll be good. Next question. Do you think dating works if you aren't attracted to the person, but they have a great personality or the opposite in that they have no personality, but you find them hot? Shane, what's your take? Dating works, I think, if if it's just dating, sure. If you're yeah. if you're asking for a long-term relationship, I'd like to think the Venn diagram needs to cross at being attracted and finding them interesting. But dating can be fun. And sometimes you go on four dates and you have great conversations and they're very interested and it's it ends up being platonic and that's fine. And sometimes you go on dates and it's just 
you know, getting busy with the person. And that can be fine and fun, too, as long as nobody gets hurt. So, yeah, I think dating's great. No, Would I want to be in a relationship with that person long term? No. That's the same answer I had. If you're just dating, if you're having a good time with that person for whatever that good time looks like with you, whether it's like intellectual, humorous, physical, as long as something's happening and you're both enjoying it, keep going. Like, Spend time with people you like being around for whatever reason. You know, you don't have to prove yourself to anybody. So I say, yes, it works. Long term, as Shane said, probably won't work out for you. Well, it's tough waters to navigate, too. So know that going in because I've been on both sides of the coin here where feelings inevitably do happen. Mm -hmm. So you might have to break some hearts in the process. And I don't know if that's necessarily worth it so i think it can work i just don't think if you did this for a year i bet you're gonna have a mm -hmm. lot of heartbreak on your hands yeah no absolutely but but if it's like going out with somebody a couple times that's pretty risk-free right of course but this is n recognizing that you're either not attracted mm -hmm. to them or you are attracted to them but you know there's the other element so, it, so it's there. recognizing that it's not going to progress and still yeah. going with it Right. So I, maybe both people would have to kind of be in That's recognition. That's what I mean. Yeah. So this is a almost like anomalous situation where both people, mm -hmm. I guess it's easier if it's just sexual because then both people are getting something out of it. No. Well, if it's just a good time, if they like each other for the hang, but no, it won't work because of whatever. But two then people go on get... a dating site to find love, end up just liking each other for the hang. Someone's going to get feelings. More well, than the not other if person. you keep it to two dates or something, like max three dates. Okay. No, I I, I thought know, the I... question was predicated on like, is it okay to go on a lot right. of dates with somebody? Because everyone goes on those dates, yeah, or two or three. I true. thought this was the question is going yeah. past that period. No, no, no. That makes sense. That makes sense. I'm just saying, yes, it can work. If, you know, I'm talking to people, mm -hmm. last night I was talking to people about this, and it seems like it always gets into treacherous waters. It, in rare cases, it can work. I, you know what? Now that I think about it, though, I, I don't know any rare case that it has worked because somebody always does develop feelings, and they're, you are, you're right. There always is either jealousy or heartbreak when the other person doesn't want to continue anymore. Yeah, don't do it. Uh, so we changed our mind on what we first said. <laughs> you know, this is very rare thing to happen so appreciate that it did happen because people often don't change their minds after they give an answer but have, we have you have you often been friend zoned or have you ever been friend zoned of course oh my goodness i before i met you I, I, we've talked about this in great detail i went on so many dates and i had never experienced rejection so much yeah. in my life and i i had never had to reject so many people in my life either and it was hard and i had to do a lot of calls and tell people oh i'm not over my last relationship and all that but then i met you and apparently i was over the relationship <laughs> because i was over it enough to get in a relationship with you because i had just called someone like four days before i met you mm -hmm. and told them i wasn't ready to start dating next thing i know you know you're all over my instagram and we're in love so i'd hate for that person just to feel like mm -hmm. i was lying or just saying that as a yeah. line to get off the hook or something how, it's so tricky, this stuff. How many people did you have to call when you and I started dating to say, hey, sorry, can't go out anymore. I'm dating somebody. Oh, no. And I texted them. <laughs> it was a mass text. <laughs> how many? 
no one really you just go on instagram and they can see like once you put up a post to make it instagram official people get a hint yeah it took us a while to do our first post it wasn't until that pool party next question role reversal if you and shane swapped jobs for a day who would handle it better and i know i know what we're both gonna say we're both gonna say that I'm going to say I would handle it better. You would say you would handle it better because I'm going to say that you would not be able to do my job and you're going to say I would not be able to do yours. I think you could do my job. Like you pretty much do do my job. You know how to edit. You know how to come up with ideas. It It's hard to do what I do with not having done it for years. Mm-hmm. So, but I think you could be competent and passable and you could fool people. I think I would be extremely nervous if it was a topic I knew nothing about. <laughs> Luckily, if I remember being a supply teacher correctly, sometimes you can just pop in like a DVD of Rudy or something <laughs> and just sit back. Okay, and- that happened once <laughs> when Shane and I first started dating. It was like our first month of dating. It was like September supply teaching. It was like a grade nine auto shop class which is so rare for me to go in but when i go in obviously they're not allowed to work on the cars so the teacher was like put in rudy i put in rudy and shane has been making jokes about that for the last six years Well, when i was a student i used to watch the supply teacher would come in i know the deal we didn't really do a lot when the supply came in i know you some days do a ton because you love to teach yes nine out of ten days i'm fully lecturing if I know what I'm doing and I have a plan, I can be very confident in public speaking, but it seems like you get thrown to the wolves a lot. Yeah. You have to play a lot of jazz on the spot. And to me, that's terrifying. I could never do that. Mm-hmm. So you, you can do that better and not have a panic attack. I would literally have a panic attack. Yeah. That's super tough. Okay. What does it feel like when your panic attacks are coming on? Like, do you, do you... I guess what I'm saying, do you have any control over when they happen? Like, do you think that sometimes you work yourself up so much um, from nerves that it happens? Or does it just happen like before you even get a chance to think about the situation you're in? It's just a domino effect. Like you you start spiraling out of control. You think you're going to freak out. You think you're going to embarrass yourself. You can't breathe properly. Oh, my goodness. Do I have to go to the hospital? Am I dying? Oh, I'm going to black out. Um this is last time it happened to me in a real serious way was three or four years ago. And I was just about to rush into my boss's office and tell him I had to go. And then I watched a YouTube video on how to calm down. Mm-hmm. And 10 minutes later, I felt better. What did you do to calm down? Uh, breathing exercises. I, a very calm voice on YouTube was telling me this is common. Everything's going to be okay. You're, And it was saying the exact things I was feeling, mm-hmm. which made me feel like oh this is a common thing this person's saying exactly this what my thoughts are cycling out at and this past week i there was a couple of times where i was about to have a panic attack but since i know it so well and i know the sensations and i know there's there it is trying to make me fall for it i'm like ah not this time no i'm gonna take it to the brink and just not give in so it's now more like like okay this is a bad comparison but like lucid dreaming where you can like step in and be like, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to let it go here. Like I'm going to take action. Yeah. That's very cool. Fight or flight mm-hmm. type of thing. Yeah. No, that's very cool. Okay. Next question. More bathrooms are becoming unisex. Do you think this is a good move even at schools? 
So I, I was looking into this because I was like, okay, I, I can't picture a school having like a big bathroom that's unisex because personally, I do not think that if it's not a single stall bathroom, I don't think it should be unisex because I just, I personally would feel horribly, horribly, horribly uncomfortable and unsafe if it was not unisex. However, most restaurants that are opening now in our city, they only have single stall washrooms. They'll have like six or two whatever single stall washrooms and they are unisex. And that's fine. I love it. I think it's great, especially because, you know, there's not zero lineup for the men's and then a huge lineup for the women's. It's just like everybody's using all the washrooms and it goes so much quicker. They're more accessible for everybody. Like they're all typically big bathrooms that even wheelchairs can fit in. And I think single stall unisex bathrooms at schools, wherever, whatever public place, I think it's amazing. I think it's great. And I think that's how it should be. What do you think? Yeah, it doesn't – if it's a single stall, who cares? It's just a door yeah. with a picture on the front. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I okay, I learned the names of two conditions. Tell me if, what you think this condition is because single stall washrooms are also very helpful for these people. People who suffer from paruesis, paruesis. It's when thing when they see a sign and they can't make sense of it, so they can't really tell the difference between men and women sign. No, but I really love that explanation. It is people with a shy bladder can't urinate if there's somebody else in the area, but it's an actual condition. And then, okay, this is another hard one. Parcopresis is the name that represents the condition where people actually have fetal fecal, fetal, fetal retention, (laughs) where people have fecal retention because they don't want to poop if they even just perceive that somebody else is in the area. And it's like, it it causes damage to your insides. But my fear too is if I'm diarrheaing or something (laughs) and then it's a single stall and you walk out and then someone's just walking in. (laughs) And if it's a woman, I feel 10 times worse than if it's a man. And there's no one else to blame. How often is that happening? Often enough where you don't forget it. No, Shane, you got to make it, you got to play it off like it was a person before you. You got to be like, that that bathroom's in bad shape. (laughs) The guy before me must have had burritos for lunch. Yeah, if I'm Ace Ventura and this is a comedic (laughs) film, sure, I'll do that. But in reality, I don't think I'm going to do the (laughs) guy had burritos. Do not go in there. Like, I'm not doing Here's another solution. Carry around a set of matches so you can light a match. The second the poop drops or as it's dropping, you start flushing the toilet. Okay. I learned this. A supermodel was talking about this. It wasn't even – it was like (laughs) – honestly – I want to see this interview and how that – So Kate Moss. No, it might have been Cindy Crawford. Somebody from that era. It was somebody from that era. Okay, so Cindy Crawford is getting interviewed, and somehow the conversation gets into how to flush the second the poo hits the water. Ew, I'm not kidding you. If one of those types of supermodels, like in that golden age, was talking about this, and they said the second they start taking a number two. Was this Dateline? Or? I don't know what it was from. I don't know why I know this, but they said the second they start going, they flush the toilet. So then that way, it... <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. doesn't leave marks and the smell goes away right away and then you wipe and whatever and then you flush but when again. you're at a cottage and the septic needs to be treated a certain right. way you can't do that so that's, that, why you that's gotta, when you're really in a jam no you rely on the matches you got to carry matches in your pocket but sometimes you don't even want people to know that you've gone number two and yeah. the matches is such a signifier but at least if you light a match they just know that it was like enough for a match they don't know how terrible it was okay <laughs> Do you still think these questions are shitty? <laughs> well, no, and you've totally redeemed yourself. I am looking up Cindy Crawford interviews right after this, though. So. Okay, hold at least on. I know what I'm doing tonight. It might not have been her, but it was somebody like her. Okay. Well, I'm finding it. Last question. All right. So there was a London library recently ran into trouble regarding some entertainment they hired. Google the London Library monkey costume. Would you be annoyed if your kids saw this? Shane, do you know what this is? No. I'm very intrigued though. I knew what it was the second this person wrote in the question. I'm showing Shane the picture. If you are listening right now and you have the opportunity to Google, Google London Library monkey costume so that you can be a part of this conversation in real time. But Shane, this is the entertainment they hired to encourage kids to read. So as Shane is looking at that, I will... Actually, Shane, you describe. What are you seeing? Okay, this is a monkey with the nipples cut out. It's a man in a monkey suit. It's a man man in a monkey suit. The nipples are cut out. It's totally rainbow-colored fur, like bright rainbow-colored fur. It has a dildo on, and it's a bare butt, like a fake posterior that's plastic. This... What country is this in? London, England. So the it's wearing like a fake penis, like a huge fake penis, and it's made to look like it's like bare. Like it's really disturbing. And this was at a library for a children's event. What's the logic though? There has to be an explanation. It was. It Is it was, supposed to be like a metaphor for something? No, like, it was like, hey kids, this silly monkey wants you to learn how to read type thing. Oh, and they wanted to make him anatomically correct so they put a penis on but that's not what a monkey looks like he's rainbow colored and his big penis that's not a monkey penis i don't know i haven't seen a monkey penis okay ever shane if we were at the library for like a kid's event and this thing came out what would your reaction be that's a big monkey penis i'd say (laughs) yeah but we got the kids we got lucy like what is that sure you could say it's a monkey penis but do we need to have conversations about monkey peni at three years old no it's weird it's weird i would think that the the monkey guy was very creepy i would think that the library was very creepy and i would be registering complaints i'd probably ask him to put some pants on probably but like would we sit there would would you be freaked out or would you sit there for the whole presentation I'd be curious. I would sit there, yes. <laughs> With the kids, though? Well, listen, I'm there. I would think these people had some logic to what they're doing. I don't think they're trying to sexualize the monkey. Like, it's no, not It's not erect. It doesn't matter. It's way bigger than it needs to be. I don't know. I guess monkeys come in all shapes and sizes. People do. Humans do. Why wouldn't monkeys? I think that this is very creepy, personally. Yeah, but it's just because we're not used to it. So I'm trying to give them the benefit. <laughs> of the- <laughs> I don't Rainbow know. Rainbow monkeys with 
bare penises. I want to know what they're trying to do because it's just it's not something I would see. I'm not used to like typically when there's a mascot or something walking around kids, we pretend they don't have genitals. So uh-huh. to see genitals on something, it would be jarring. But if there was a logic behind it, I'd be happy to hear it. And maybe I could. I, I'm hoping you've done research and there is more of an explanation. Is there? Have you done? Mm, well, I, I stopped it at seeing the monkey. <laughs> That's it? Your research is showing me the monkey? Well, okay. I'm well, so curious wait, why they wait, would do wait. this. All right. I'm going to look it up right now. All right. So the library in London that this occurred in it has apologized for holding the event to encourage children to read during which an actor dressed like a bare bottomed monkey with a fake penis performed so obviously like the footage went crazy on social media and there were three performers at the library and one of them was in this inappropriate monkey costume that was anatomically exaggerated uh but they've just it was they were using it as a means to teach children to read is what the library is saying. And they are apologizing for the chaos that it caused. Mm-hmm. But it was it was in an effort to encourage kids to read. Okay, you're right. I looked it up. The average monkey penis is 1.5 inches. <laughs> so they did seem to exaggerate this quite a bit. Yeah, no, it, it was a terrible choice. So they were circus performers and they said they didn't realize at the time that one of the costumes was inappropriate. But it's like, then it's on the circus performers. Like, who in their right mind says, oh, this is a great circus costume to wear to a children's event? Like, that is where the creepiness comes in, you know? Yeah, agreed. The second you get the costume on, you look down, you realize you've got a big penis hanging out and you're going to be around kids. Yeah. I would put shorts on. So, yes, I would think that's extremely odd and I would probably register a complaint. And I'd be weirded out myself. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you have it, folks. Because mm-hmm. there's no logic here. It was a mistake. Let's hope these people learn from that mistake. Let's <laughs> <laughs> hope monkey, yeah. rainbow monkey man gets yeah. arrested, maybe. What else you got? That's it, babe. That's it? That's it. Well, what an episode. You know, wasn't feeling great at the beginning of this, but I'm always feeling great at the end that we, we went out, we chatted with each other. Me too. And uh, yeah, give us a five-star rating if you could, please. Do it. We'd love it. We'd love you. We'd love it. But if you can't, listening is quite enough. I guess. Thank you so much for listening to This This Family Family Tree Tree Podcast. Podcast. Episode 104.